names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own songs so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. Werewolf. There is a wolf in me. Fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, and the hot lapping of blood. I keep this wolf because the wilderness gave it to me, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fox in me, a silver-gray fox. I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air. I nose in the dark night and take sleepers and eat them and hide the feathers. I circle and loop and double-cross. There is a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fish in me. I know I came from salt blue water gates. I scurried with shoals of herring. I blew water spouts with purpose, porpoises before land was, before the water went down, before Noah, before the first chapter of Genesis. There is a baboon in me, clamoring clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. Here are the hawk-eyed, hankering men. Here are the blonde and blue-eyed women. Here they hide, curled asleep, waiting, ready to snarl and kill, ready to sing and give milk, waiting. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There is an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want, and the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes, and I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo, I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where. It is going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no. I sing and kill and work. I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 39 Leaf Stories and Singing Stones. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And we're here in Durham, in a corner of the wilderness of Durham, at a city park. (laughs) And that poem you just heard, by the way, is called Wilderness, and it's by Carl Sandburg. And thank you for reading that, Gumby. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to say that I got that poem. Somebody gave it to me at the only birthday party that I ever threw for myself. Um, and I did not like the experience, but that year somebody just wrote that a coworker of mine on a piece of paper and gave it to me. And it was my favorite present for that year. And I kept it on my fridge and now I have it. Like I just carry it with me in some notebook or something. I'm always around that poem. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it, it really means a lot to me. And I really like how it expresses all the different sides of the wilderness within us. Um, because today we're going to be talking about animism. Da, da, da. And 
Animism uh, being a knowledge that was once known to all human beings. And we'll talk a little bit about some examples and as well as what happened. Like we're, we're, we're practicing, but uh, it's a far cry from just being of it. Like we've, we've kind of removed ourselves. Yeah, animism is kind of an umbrella term that anthropologists use to describe the many diverse religions of indigenous peoples. Um, what's remarkable is how many things that they seem to agree on, even though the rituals differ widely um, in how to give thanks. But there's a lot of, um, what would I say, recognition of spirits, of the spirits within the living animals that we see, uh, an equality, uh, reciprocity that we don't find in our culture. Um, that seems to kind of underpin a philosophy of like a sustainable way to live. Um, yeah, so one of the examples I think of when I think of an animist culture comes from actually one of the massacres in United States history. I didn't bother to write down the dates or anything because we're not really trying to do a, a strictly historic um, podcast here. But it was the Sandy Creek Massacre. That's what this story comes from. And uh, you can look up that date. I believe this happened with uh, Black Kettle and his tribe of, and forgive me if I get this wrong, but I think Lakota. Um, were you trying to show me? Yep. So, um, so they were at peace with the United States. And uh, it, they were even given an American flag. So Black Kettle against a lot of the other people that were around that wanted to fight the United States government at this point, like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Black Kettle decided, no, I'm going to make peace. And uh, he actually pissed off a lot of his people by making this decision. So he flew the American flag um, in the middle of the tribe, you know, in the middle of his village. And the United States government still decided that these people were a threat. And so mm -hmm. the, the soldiers... Um, came one morning and began firing on the unarmed village. And uh, they put up a white flag. They were throwing up their hands. They were like showing the American flag, like, no, 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 you got the wrong people. It's a mistake. But it wasn't a mistake. Mm -hmm. The soldiers knew exactly who they were shooting at, and it was a massacre. Um, but the story relevant to this podcast in particular involves some of the survivors of this massacre. It said that some of the women and children um, went out onto this prairie all by themselves. Their food's gone. They're, they don't know who's alive and who's dead. They're separated from their tribe. They're all alone. They're in, in bad trouble. And it's said that the wolf people, a couple of wolves came and guided them towards their den. And the people actually lived with the wolves for a few days. Um, and it's this beautiful story of the people that see themselves on equal terms with the tribes around them. You know, this this story isn't something that would really come easily from our culture, but from their culture, it seemed natural enough. Of course, of course the wolf people take care of them because they take care of the wolf people. They're their neighbors. Um, they might do the same for the wolf people if they found some wolves in trouble. So there's this beautiful story of how they cared for them until they uh, got back to their, their tribe and they told the story of how the wolf people saved them. I encountered this story from a book by Derek Jensen called A Language Older Than Words, and this is a great animistic book. Um, the premise of the book is Derek is talking about that he's living on his property and he's got some chickens and they're laying eggs and the coyotes keep stealing his chickens. So one day he yells to the hills at the coyotes, will you ste quit stealing the eggs from my chickens? Like I'm actually fighting for the environment, you know, like I'm trying to do something for all of us, your people and my people, please just get, give me a break. And strangely, the next day, None of the eggs were stolen. And then the day after that, and the eggs just stopped being stolen. And he thought, wow, that's that's bizarre. And um, then his dog started eating the eggs. And uh, 
you know, he asked his dogs, like, you know, can you guys, like, he actually sat down and had a discussion with them. And the dogs quit eating the eggs. So he's thinking, you know, nothing in my training in this culture has taught me, um, has given me any kind of explanation for what I just witnessed. I'd be a fool to ignore that this happened. This actually happened. But everything I've read about science, everything I've, I've encountered does not explain this. And he told it to one of his indigenous friends. And she said, well, duh, you know, we, our people have been trying to tell your people that for years. Of course they, they listen. Of course they talk. So off that platform, he launches into this great book where he's describing a culture that we've created that is um, hinged on the idea that nothing can speak. There are scientific experiments he talks about where the scientists dissect living animals, and when the animals screech in pain, they cut their vocal cords to, quote, um, uh, to end the distractions of the vocal emissions. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no acknowledgement that it's actually an emotion because they believe only humans can do that. Everything about our culture is contingent on the fact that the humans are the only intelligent thing that can speak. And pretty much everything we do that we've normalized in our lives falls completely apart if we let that go. If we start thinking that things actually have feelings, intelligence, and talk and have as much value as humans. We can't live the way we do with that philosophy. Um, he describes his abusive childhood where he's sitting at a table eating peas and his father was sexually abusing and physically abusing in other ways, his whole family. And one night he's sitting there eating his peas and his dad leaps up from the table and snatches his brother up and is chasing him, you know, just trying to grab him and savagely beat him. And Derek talks about he sat at the table and he didn't know what to do. So he says, you know what I did? I ate my peas. And he draws this brilliant analogy between that episode and his childhood and what we all do as a culture, that we all know horrific, horrific, monstrous things are happening all around us, abuses, extinctions, pollutions, um, rape. It's happening all around us, but we don't know what to do. We're overwhelmed. So we're like that little abused child that doesn't understand what to do in the middle of all this abuse. So we just keep eating our peas. We go to McDonald's. We watch Netflix. We fill up our gas tank. We fill up our gas tank. And uh, I don't know. I thought it was a really moving, beautiful book, but it's really raw too. There's a lot of stuff you don't necessarily want to know. And yet I think we need to know because this is our culture. And as a contrast to that, um, speaking to the culture that we live in, I wanted to read this uh, quote by Harvey Arden. Where did you find this at? Do you remember? Um, I know it was in one of the animus books that I've read somewhere along the way that I can't remember the name of. All right. Well, this is a Harvey Arden quote. Indians, as I would come to realize, don't need the concept of faith a kind of compulsory belief in something you can't really know about. In particular, Indians don't need faith in God. They see God, Wakantanka, the great holy, the great mysterious, in every stone, every tree, every blowing wind, every star. Faith is unnecessary for them. They can see what they believe in with their own two eyes and hear God in every stroke of lightning and thunder. I love that. It makes me think of uh, Daniel Quinn wrote in his one, one of his books where he questioned faith as well. He said, you wouldn't, it would be absurd to say I have faith in supermodels, hmm. you know, because we know they're there. So the, the very act of saying I have faith in something is faith in something we actually consider to be absurd, that we actually don't quite believe in. Otherwise, we don't need the faith. 
So I love that quote that it's really beautiful that an Indian, um, these Indians that this guy is speaking of, see the holy God. They don't need to have faith. It's right there in front of them. The miracle is never doubted. And um, we also read a lot of the Carlos Castaneda books, and he learned a lot from the uh, the Yaqui Indian traditions. Yeah, I've read through the series several times. Teresa and I are reading it together. We're on the fire within right now. And coming from a culture, um, the Yaqui Indians, who do relate in an animistic way to their surroundings, it's no wonder that throughout the writings of Castaneda, it comes it comes up again and again in so many different poetic and beautiful ways, like the dust of moth's wings is the knowledge, right, Gumby? And different uh, entities can be felt in the wind because at a certain time of the day, there's never a wind. That's not wind. That's something else, something different, something alive. Uh, and... <laughs> um, there's also a, a guardian that is a gnat, like a little flying around insect. Um, often water is used as a portal to a different reality. And Gumby, what about body specifics like walking? Um, yeah, well, one of the things I love about the Carlos Castaneda books is, as Teresa's alluding to, that, you know, it's not so much about like, ghosts, like things that are hard to imagine. It's about like physical things, you know, like when he encounters the guardian to the other world, it's a gnat. And did you talk about all the, you know, that the, the water is a place where inorganic beings, as he calls them, like these beings that we, uh, don't see with our physical senses tend to gather. Um, and even place and time, you know, he, he trains him to find a place that's got good energy for him. And every place is important, you know. The top of a mountain is much different than a valley, totally different energy. Some are dangerous for you, and others can give you power. And times of day, like Carlos has taught that his time of day is odd for sorcerers. It's the, the dusk, or sor many sorcerers gather energy from the, the, the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and the crow, when he hears a crow, that it's usually an omen, a warning, um, and that often shamans shapeshift into crows. So sometimes when you see crows, you got to be careful. That that could be a sorcerer. So it's not so much that I'm saying, like, we need to pretend like we know these things. Like, you know, I actually physically know that the moth of a dust, uh, the dust of a moth's wing is knowledge. But it's a window into relating to a world that magical, that it's physically there. It's not just pretending like you're Harry Potter. It's that when you encounter these things, this is that thing. And um, what a world that would be to live in, you know, just a window into that that kind of magic. Um, I'm sorry, what did you ask me? You asked me something specific, I feel like. Oh, the body specifics of walking. Oh, and even the way he moves, he's so specific with the body. A big part of animism is inhabiting this physical body. So, like, the sun coming in the left eye, you know, means a specific thing. Feeling a twinge or something exactly where, you know, in your second rib, third rib, they all mean separate things. And I've also heard this related from the uh, Bushmen of the Kalahari, that they would sit around a fire and an anthropologist would notice like they'd get up and just suddenly as if somebody had called them and he would never hear somebody call them. And um, he talked to them and they said that they would feel a member of their family call them and they would know what member of their family wanted them by exactly where in their body they felt a twitch or a twinge or a feeling. Um, so the body 
is thought of as a tool, a very specific tool, and I love that physicality. You know, we treat our bodies as these kind of blunt machines. You just try to make them look good to attract people, um, try to keep them fairly healthy, you know, and really depend on the drugs and things to help them out. And even when we keep them healthy, we're on these machines, you know, at the gym. But, you know, this magical way of living where the, the, the water is a portal to another world and your body is a part of that magic, you are also a magical being. Um, also something you run into with animists a lot when you start studying animism is totems and spirit animals. Now I got kind of turned off to spirit animals because there's a lot of, uh, new agey type of people that talk about, you know, like, Oh, the cougar is my spirit animal. And it, it just sounds so pretentious. I'm talking about reverence for these animals, you know, that like, you have a connection and something that really develops. And I'm not saying all the new agey people don't have that connection. Um, I've just run into some, <laughs> what I might call posers that kind of turn me off. But, uh, Teresa, can you find me that book? Um, oh, right here. So there's something I wanted to read from the name of the book is the deep ecology movement, and it's full of different essays. And one of the essays is called ritual is essential by Dolores LaChapelle. Um, Let's see. This is... Okay. And she writes, Beginning in the Northwest, it is fitting that we talk of salmon. Salmon is the totem animal for the North Pacific Rim. Only salmon as a species informs us humans as a species of the vastness and unity of the North Pacific Ocean and its rim. Totemism is a method of perceiving power, goodness, and mutuality in locale through the recognition of and respect for the vitality, spirit, and interdependence of other species. As Lynn House explains, for at least 20,000 years, the Yurik, Chinook, Salish, Kwakiutl, Haida, and Aleut on this side of the rim and on the other rim of the Pacific, the Ainu, the primitives of Japan, ordered their daily lives according to the timing of the salmon population. Several years ago, I did some in-depth study of Celtic myth and discovered that salmon was the totem animal for the Celts, too. According to their myth, there was a sacred well situated under the sea where the sacred salmon acquired their supernatural wisdom. The famous Celtic hero, Finn, traditionally obtained his wisdom when he sucked on the thumb he had just burnt when picking up the salmon he cooked. It is not surprising that salmon links all these areas. The North Pacific Rim and the British Isles are maritime climates in the northern half of the earth. Here is the perfect way to ritualize the link between planetary villagers around the earth through their totem animal. And I just thought that was very evocative and interesting, you know, that these very separate cultures from the Celts to the, uh, you know, indigenous tribes of the distant, what we call North America now, um, all revered the salmon and found wisdom in the species. And then what it means that these things are going away, you know, the salmon are in trouble right now from the dams we're building. There's a lot of species that are threatened, if not um, already going extinct. And, you know, we just think of it as a shame, like, you know, the the most you usually hear from someone is, man, that's a shame. They have a right to be here. I'm going to miss the salmon. But it's more than that. Um, cultures that live close to the earth, that live a sane, nature-connected life, derive irreplaceable wisdom from each species. It has a special gift, a special wisdom that can be shared with the humans, just like we can have a special human wisdom that we can share with others. But we're so removed from it. We're losing so much when these animals go away from us. You know, this this salmon was the, the core totem, um, a pillar of these communities. And um, 
Yeah, I think of like, you know, even with my limited not coming from a culture that teaches me about totems and and animals, I just thought of some of the teachers that I've found among the animals, some with the help of uh, places like Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School (laughs) and John Young's Wilderness Awareness School. They've introduced me to a lot of animals as teachers for specific things. I think of spider, how spider teaches faith, you know. Spider builds a web and just waits, and spider knows that the food's coming. Spider... You know, I can't think of an animal that better represents faith, that the earth will take care of you. Mm. Um, Spider also teaches important things about weaving and trapping. I think a fox. Um, You know, the way we move through this world, it's not just a matter of getting your heart rate up and exercising. Everything is a specific power we're keying into. It's a magical place we live in, and the fox is a master walker. We can learn a lot about how to walk in this world from the fox with his deliberate footsteps. If you want to learn about what a tribe looks like, and God knows we're losing that knowledge so fast, these geese that we just kind of uh, scowl at that are pooping all over these lawns we want to be on, they are masters of tribe and community. Um, They really know what it's like to think of self in a bigger way, to think of their whole population. Um, You have a lookout, you know, you have a leader. They take turns as the leader when they fly. Um, And the bison, the bison are also masters of community and tribe. The owl teaches us how to see. The owl with his eyes so big that uh, he can't even turn the eyes anymore. He just turns his head, eyes that take in everything. We can mimic the owl and actually improve our sight um, using our peripheral vision more, things like that. The raccoon who scavenges, who always finds what he needs around when he looks in any kind of habitat, even the habitat that we're changing and altering so much with our human um, actions. And the sense of touch. The raccoon who can find crayfish in the water at night and know what to eat just by touch alone, you know. The raccoon reminds us how to be in our skin. And bear, it was said, you could follow bear to find medicinal herbs. And bear, who's a master of scent, um, bear has a wet nose. So, you know, I've learned that you can wet your nose a little bit and that water is sticky, the water molecules. It actually picks up more molecules in the air and can improve your scent by moistening your nose, just like bear in this primal, ancient sensory um, skill of of the olfactory, the the smell. And deer... um, When I was a kid, this is the first one I picked up on my own. I started running through the woods, and then one day it just dawned on me, like, to run like a deer. I don't even know where I got the idea, but I started imagining I'm a deer, and damn if I didn't run faster and safer. I could run through trees that used to catch me, and I'd just fly through them for some reason. I don't know what happened, but I stumbled upon some kind of magic. And to this day, I can run better if I imagine I'm a deer. Can't explain why. Don't need to explain why. All I know is I tapped into something, and I know it works. I don't need to prove it to anybody. Deer is also a master listener. Deer's survival depends on listening to the birds, listening to everything around deer. Um, Coyote. Coyote's ways are mischievous, legendarily mischievous. Um, Coyote is the trickster. Um, And Coyote has a lot to teach about how to teach. You know, like not the didactic bore the crap out of kids and make them sit down. And uh, I actually saw a couple cops walking through this park right now. They're parked in the parking lot. And I think they're after a couple teenage boys that may be skipping school. But that's what it's come down to. You know, school is an institution. It's a prison. The coyote teaches us how to teach in a way that you don't even know you're learning. I think of Mr. Miyagi from the original Karate Kid. I say the original because I don't know what the new one is. I haven't seen it. Um, But, you know. Uh, Ralph Macchio thought he was learning how to wax his car and everything, and he was actually learning karate moves. This is brilliant coyote teaching. It's invisible learning, and that's the energy that coyote evokes and reminds us of, the coyote becomes the master of. 
Squirrel teaches shelter, brilliant shelters. Otter teaches us how to play, you know, just constant play. And chickadee, even in a blizzard, you'll see chickadees sometimes just throwing caution to the wind and taking joy on the miserable days that you're, you're huddled up and you feel like you're in hell. Chickadee finds joy everywhere. And even our dogs and cats, you know, these pets around us, they both have so much to teach us about movement. Dog, the way dog keeps um, its legs bent, you know, when you look at a dog's legs, they're rarely ever straight out. And when we study indigenous cultures that are known for being able to cover vast distances, being the best runners, um, I've heard their legs described as always being a little bent, a little springy. They don't tend to have stiff, straight legs. And cat, the same dominant senses we have, sight and sound. Cat moves a few steps, stops, looks around. Moves another few steps, stops, looks around. And uh, one of these cops has a fucking blower. What is that about? A leaf blower. Is he trying to like scare out the kids with a leaf blower? Anyway, that's distracting. But so cat, you know, how to move through the woods, not just walk, 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 because we're not like dog that follows a scent smell. Cat teaches us how to use our dominant senses, the same as cats, how to move through the woods. Pause, notice things, move, pause, notice things. So these are just some examples. We could go on and on. We, we realize as we're kind of brainstorming, like we've got to draw the line somewhere because that could be the whole podcast. But for every species, there's something unique that this animal has that for the person that knows how to receive it can learn, can benefit, can bring back to their tribe, something that might seem silly by our our cultural standards, but when you're an indigenous tribe close to nature, the masters of survival and how to be here are the animals. As it said in the Haudenosaunee, they remember the old ways, the original teachings. So when we've forgotten the original teachings, we need them. They preserve this knowledge. So we're losing so much when these animals that are going extinct, it's not just a shame. It's really, in a direct way, I feel like harming our species because how the hell are we going to find our way back? Yeah, the um, and it's you know it's one thing to speak about the totem animals and what their their teachings are and their medicines, and then there's the tribes who were in such relation with these people, the bear people, the bird people, etc. Um, and those tribes are wiped off the face of the earth. I remember reading, I think it was in, um, I think it was in John Lame Deer, and he was mentioning elk medicine and how it just broke my heart. Like the last people that knew about elk medicine, and I believe elk medicine had something to do with intimacy, whether it was mm-hmm. sex or love with yeah. a partner, that knowledge is gone. And yeah. When we heard the elk bugles in the high country of um, Nevada, I just remembered that, like, what are they saying? And I don't know. What a mystical sound. And, yeah, I remember you telling me that. It was so sad because, like, there's certain medicine, you know, like wisdom. It's more than just wisdom. I I don't know how to talk about it without intellectualizing it. But it's power, which is a harder thing to for me to know, much less talk about. Um but they were saying that the elk wisdom, because of what we've done, have, has gone away. The people that knew the secrets of the elk are are gone. And yeah, it's just we're losing so much because the tribes of people were the people 
that learned these lessons, that developed them and preserved them. So when these indigenous people get exterminated and then the survivors are broken and they get incorporated into our way of life, there's so much that is lost that we can't even understand. It's invisible to us because we are so removed from the source. Um, I think of... You know, another thing you run into in animism a lot is the idea of what I might call shape-shifting, that things are interchangeable. Story after story involves, like, you know, someone from a tribe marries a woman that's a frog, but it doesn't look like a frog. She takes off her frog skin and she's a woman, and maybe the man um, puts on frog skin and he's a frog. There's this impermeability. There's this recognition that we are all connected. You know, I used to love this story... uh, God, I can't remember what it's called. Um, But it was about a boy who um, adopted and took care of an eagle, and when it was time to let the eagle go, the eagle adopted him into the eagle people, and he put on, he brought him a coat of feathers, and the boy became an eagle, and he lived up there, and he learned how to eat like an eagle and become an eagle. And, um, you know, the boy broke one of the laws. I don't want to tell the whole story now, though. It would have been a good one. Um, But... You know, to get home, they gave him a ratty old pair of feathers. So he became an eagle once again, but it was like his feathers were so old and raggedy that it was just good enough to fly back to his people. And then they came and snatched him back. But story after story of like impermeability of this bigger sense of self, this tribe that I find beautiful. Um, There's this book, David Abram is one of my favorite authors on animism. Even though he's a philosopher, it can be kind of uh, heady and hard to read at times, but if you just keep pushing through it, you'll you'll run into ideas that'll stick with you, that are really new and deep and profound. Um, His sequel book, his first book was Spell of the Sensuous, which is my favorite. The second one he wrote was Becoming Animal, and at the end of Becoming Animal, he talks about apprenticing with a sorcerer, a shaman, in maybe Nepal, some somewhere in, in that part of the world. But it's really interesting how the guy... <laughs> He's been in Nepal! But, so the guy is teaching him, like, he'll have him sit down around these crows, and he'll say, I want you to focus on a spot halfway between you and the crow. Don't look at the crow. Look at the air in between. And then, you know, he'll have him do that for days and days. And then, like, Stare inside the rock. Stare on the other side of the rock. I don't want you to look at this side of the rock. Look at the side of the rock facing away from you. And just this perception, you know, this pulling of his perception, like where he is, his sense of where he is. When you think about where you think you are, I think most of us think of ourselves somewhere behind our eyes. That's where we fixate, you know. If we lose a hand, yeah, damn, that was a part of us. It sucks, but that wasn't us. We're still us. But if we lose, like, you know certain parts of what we think of as ourself, we only inhabit part of our body. But the idea that you can move that, and eventually he's told to move that into a crow. In the final lesson, he becomes the crow and sees himself. And it's this profound window for him. This is part of what animism is. There's no separation between me and the crow. We are the same, and I can actually move my perception back and forth. I don't have to be trapped in this one body I'm taught is me. Um, I thought that was profound. Castaneda, um, in the books um, about Don Juan, also talks about this assemblage point. Um, He's taught that we are all actually luminous beings, just like Yoda says, Luminous beings you are, not this crude flesh. (laughs) I know, that was like Yoda was right here with me. Um, 
And yeah, this luminous egg, you know, a sorcerer who knows how to see can see this luminous egg. But there's this one point, he calls it the assemblage point that we see out of. And he says when you're born, everyone who's born has this chaotic assemblage point. It's going all over the place. It's wiggling and moving. And through what we teach our, our children, the assemblage point becomes fixed in one certain place. And it's called the assemblage point because through that little hole, that little viewpoint, you assemble the world. You're picking one slice of an infinite mystery, and you're saying, this is reality. This is what I accept as reality, and everything else is invisible to me. This is my assemblage point. A sorcerer learns how to adjust their assemblage point. And there's even stories in these books where if you adjust your assemblage point far enough, you can see the world um, as a crow sees the world. And not only do you assemble the world, the world assembles you back. It's a conversation. So if you see the world exactly as a crow, you've shifted your assemblage point that much, you become a crow. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating stuff. And I find it interesting how all the way from Carlos Castaneda right to David Abram, when I read about shape-shifting, once again, crow and raven. What is about these two that mm. lend themselves so easily to tales of shape-shifting? Um, he talks about, you know, the way we're taught to hold that fixed assemblage point, this inner dialogue. You know, we're constantly telling ourselves and reinforcing this idea that this is what I see, this is real, I, this is not what I see. This never enters my, my uh, perception. Um, and to paying attention to these moods, you know, these different moods we have. And I like how he says the biggest enemy of a man of knowledge is self-importance. Um, that is the number one biggest enemy. Only when you, he says, only when you become nothing do you become everything. Ooh. Um, imagine that. You know, you might think, well, I'm not very self-important because you're thinking of an extreme, like just arrogance, a millionaire, a politician. But do you really think you're no more important than a blade of grass? Do you really think that your life means nothing more to this universe than that worm dried up on the pavement, you know, after a, a rain? That is a complete lack of self-importance. And instead of being a weak place, you know, to think you're so valueless, it's a powerful place because you realize everything is valuable. There's magic everywhere. And I love that. That's another, for me, window into what animism is. That's what it means to have this expanded sense of self. Um, as I talked about with the, in the Castaneda books, how he trains him to be finely nuanced with his body, you know, to really tune into that sensuality. John Young taught me, um, lose your mind and come to your senses. Um, to turn off that internal dialogue. It's interesting because that there was no mention of Carlos Castaneda, and yet that has so much of the elements of Carlos Castaneda's teachings or Don Juan's teachings. Lose your mind. Stop the internal dialogue as much as you can. Let that go. Don't focus on it. And inhabit your body, your senses. What is that world out there telling you? When you're not trying to interpret it, you're just letting it in. It's so sensual. And those moments like um, that you can let that in, become a sponge, you know, engage all your senses at once. It feels so good. It feels like you've returned to something. It feels like a more natural way to be. And it makes you realize when you go back to, you know, getting up from practicing this, how you're taught the contrast, how you're taught not to in inhabit your body in that way. Something's missing. Something's wrong. Um, 
sexuality is a time that we can really engage in this. It's not the only time to feel sensual by any means. So if you don't have a partner right now, you know, I'm not like saying like, oh, you can't practice this. You can practice it anywhere, anytime. Sexuality is just one of those times that it really lends itself because it's so unprofessional. Um, It's so animalistic, you know, to... Yeah, as a man, I'm going to talk from the man's perspective because it's all I know, but to actually put part of your body inside the body of another, I mean, that's kind of like shape-shifting when you think about it, wearing the skin of another, the body of another, to feel somebody in that close of an intimate way in such a primal, animalistic way that's shared by so many species. Um, Sexuality is a a really great way to just open yourself up um, in that way, you know, just... God, I, I can't <laughs> I can't find words for it, but yeah. Um, relationship, you know, I feel like all this is about relationship. Um, just how we relate to another when we're having sex, how we if if it's sensuality, how we're relating to the bird song and the winds around us, how we're relating to all the the shadows and, and colors around us. You know, when you start looking like green, for instance, we we blind ourselves to the nuances of green by having a word for it. There are hundreds of shades of green when you look for them, just in any place you sit. Um, That is sensuousness. Oh, we've done that before while we're at the riverbank at one of our favorite places and just looking at the the different trees and the textures and the shadows and the light playing on all the different colors. I feel like Buddha was alluding to this when he said, in truth, I say to you that within this fathom-high body... With its thoughts and perceptions lies the world and the rising of the world and the ceasing of the world and the way that leads to the extinction of rising and ceasing. To me, that's an animistic thought. The extinction extinction of rising and ceasing. To me, that's the biggest picture. That's all the tribes combined. What rises? Single lives. Isolated things. What ceases? Single lives. Isolated things. What does not rise and cease? The biggest picture, the impermeability, the connections between it all. To me, um, the Buddha had some deeply animistic thoughts. Um, What was on the... Yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. What do you think about that quote? I know that we were talking a little (laughs) bit about it and you were kind of puzzled by it. I was puzzled by it, that particular quote, but I like this next quote because it's a little more my um, my speed. <laughs> it's by Mark Nepo, N-E-P-O. And Mark says, Our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves so that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being soft and unrepeatable. And I really like that getting back to the sensuousness of our of our reality regardless of what culture we're in. It's there waiting for us. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it's it's really linked to that Buddhist quote, you know, it's that uh vulnerability. That's another part of it of being sensuous, you know, exposing yourself more. Um you know, you think about like sitting outside on a day and, you know, forgetting about the mosquitoes that might be out in warm weather, but just a beautiful day. And what it's like to take off more clothes, as Mark says, to take off your gloves and feel things, you know, to really not just try to rush through them, but feel them. 
Um, one of the ideas I encountered in animism that really moved me was the idea that everything is alive. And, you know, at first, animism, I'm thinking animals. All right, animals are alive. But not just that they're alive, but they're equally valuable as me. And I realize that we don't, you know, everybody thinks animals are alive, but they don't treat them like they're equally alive as we do. And then that extends to plants. And then, all right, I started even like wrapping my mind around rivers, winds, rocks. What if they were alive? You know, just in a way that we don't define life. Of course, we define life by our own standards. It's got to be like us because we're the pinnacle of life. And the further you get away from that, the less life must be in it. Um, which doesn't really bear reason to me. You know, like if you look close enough, everything's made of atoms and that we're the same atoms, just everything's animating, vibrating energy. You know, suddenly the rock, what, we're going to hold it against the rock because it doesn't have a pulsing heart? Um, that's just one way to be in this this existence. But to think of a universe that absolutely everything is alive. You know, I've heard of these masks in Africa made by the tribes. They considered them living beings. They treated them with all kinds of ceremonies and respect. And when archaeologists come and put them in museums, a lot of times they're horrified. They object to this because these masks are alive. It's, it's like putting someone behind glass. And their stories, you know, a story is alive. You take care of your story. There are times to share a story and times you don't share a story. I actually had, when I started having my social anxiety, the first thing that really crept up on me that uh, started crippling my teaching was I suddenly couldn't tell stories anymore. And I was getting good at it. I had people started noticing like, oh, Gumby's good at telling stories. And even trying to do me a favor would hook me up with gigs that I could tell stories to people, you know, and earn money. And uh, something went wrong. I just started choking. I couldn't, I couldn't get the story out anymore. And I was like, what the hell's going on with this? I know I can do this. It's just not happening. And I look back on it from an animistic perspective now, and I think I wasn't taking care of my stories. So now when somebody asks, can you tell a story like after lunch of doing a camp? I never say yes. I say, I don't know, maybe. Mm. I have to wait to see if the story wants to be told because I've learned, at least for me, to treat a story disrespectfully as if I owned it. It doesn't work for me. I don't know why other people can do this and I can't, but I've learned to appreciate that I can't. I like that relationship I have with stories because when a story comes to me, often it feels like just the perfect time for it. Um, and places, you know, a place has its own life. So just like your body, you know, you've got mitochondria, your cells, um, your cells themselves are a symbiotic life form. You could say they're two life forms. And who knows, you know, if you want to talk about atoms and protons as life forms, how many life forms compose the community that you think of as you? Um, not to mention all the bacteria, you know, the water that makes up the bulk of your being. What do we mean by you? And so just in the same way, a place has its own life. We've all felt this. We've all got these spots we go to that we just, you know, a certain mood comes over us and we feel different there. And then other spots that another mood comes over us and we don't want to be there. There's something that happens between all the different life forms there that the place itself takes on a life of its own. Um, and God, that idea just blew me away, you know, to think of all these different forms of life. David Abrams in David Abram, uh, singular, in Becoming Animal, he explores a lot of neat things that I don't I hadn't necessarily thought of from an animistic perspective, including his own house. You know, he talked about 
raising his daughter in this house, and then it was time to move, and something was wrong. And then he thought about how his house had had this relationship with him, and he had to go through the house when he moved and, like, make peace with it, talk to it, like, say goodbye, because to just treat it like it was dead and rip himself and his family away from this house didn't feel right. And, man, I felt that moving out of our place when we moved into the van. You know, there were spots in the yard. There were just memories and relationships everywhere. And I didn't want to treat it like it was dead. You know, each one of those places had served me. I'd had a relationship even beyond just the memories that happened there. I'd had a relationship with the place. A house is something to be respected. And now the van, you know, I know like, or my car. I got rid of my car before I moved into the van. Oh, man, I was truly parting ways with a friend. And... You know, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. But he talks about houses. He talks about gravity, um, the relationship with gravity from an animistic perspective, depth, and even shadows. And I thought shadows were really interesting because he he describes them as we're typically taught to see them as two-dimensional. So here's your body. There's the sun. You're blocking the sunlight. And a two-dimensional shadow is on the ground. But he's got this beautiful way of describing this bumblebee that flies through your shadow and you watch it and the bumblebee goes into darkness. Suddenly the bumblebee looks different. It may even act differently. It's in this darkness. There's something three-dimensional that inhabits the space between your body and that shadow that you see on the ground. Um, There's something there. That darkness is a presence in itself. And he describes how early in the morning, when the sun first comes out, the shadows are so long and they're connected to the darkness, the night. And the darkness starts peeling back and these long shadows through the course of a day, if you stand there long enough, get sucked into your body, sucked into your body, sucked into your body until when the sun is at the highest point, the shadow is completely inhabiting your body. And how interesting it is in how many cultures that that's a time of day to kind of go into a little mini hibernation, a uh, siesta. Yeah, time to renew when the darkness is completely in your body. And then when the sun starts sinking, the darkness stretches out again, stretches, reaches, reaches until it connects to all the other shadows and the shadows envelop the land again. And we call this night. I mean, it was just a beautiful, different way of looking at it. And that's what I love about David Abram. Um, a way to look at it like it's alive and magical. Um, He's both a poet and a philosopher. One of the implications of animism as I began to study it was I realized that an implication of this and a powerful truth is that what we call death is a misinterpretation of life. Um, What I mean by that is we are taught a lie about what self is. Buddhism recognized this. I feel like many religions and philosophies have recognized this in their own way. But Buddhism teaches that the the root of all suffering is a misperception of self. Mm. So if you extend that, which is what animism demands we do, you extend that sense of self, maybe to your family, like really feel it, even though in our culture it's even hard to do that. You know, we tend to – you look at the sexual abuse in families and things like that. We, don't, we think of our families as objects. Why not? We're taught to objectify everything in our culture. We are a rape culture. But imagine caring for your family in the same way you care for yourself. Now imagine extending that to a tribe of people, a whole community of people that are as much your family as your own family. They're impenetrable. Uh, God, uh, shit, I can't think of the word, (laughs) but your kids, you know, you go over to, they go over to a neighbor. It's the same as them being with you. Mm. 
they're all your family. They're an extension of self. So if everything is alive and death is a misinterpretation of life, what dies? You know, like what really ends? Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has this, he's a Buddhist monk, and he has this awesome thing he describes that he calls uh, non, well, I don't know what he calls it, but he describes non-self elements. The way I heard it explained was take a piece of paper. Now, if you have the wisdom to see this piece of paper, to truly see it, you'll see the sun there. That piece of paper couldn't be there without the sun. It took the sun to grow the tree. You also see the tree there because this paper is made out of the tree. Mm. You see the factory that made the paper. And you see the people that worked at the factory because the factory couldn't have made the paper without the people. Mm. And by extension, you see all their ancestors because those people wouldn't be here without many mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers stretching back to the dawn of time. And it goes on and on. And each one of these things, the sun, the tree, you wouldn't point to the sun and say, that's a piece of paper. No, that's not paper. It's a non-paper element. You wouldn't point to the tree and say, that's a piece of paper. No, that's not a piece of paper. That's a non-paper element. (laughs) But if you look at that piece of paper and remove all of the non-paper elements, you're left with an empty space. There's no, the the one thing that paper is not is the one thing we're taught that it is, Mm. which is an isolated self, a piece of paper. It is completely comprised of non-self elements. To me, that is a profoundly animistic idea. It's another way I get to this extended sense of self. I am the trees. I am literally the bodies of water around me. I don't pollute the water. I pollute myself. Even science teaches us we are mostly made of water. Even science teaches us that we can't breathe the air without the trees. They are our lungs. So... We are completely comprised of non-self elements. And I feel like, you know, I got attracted to the idea of no immortal soul. That scared me at first. That's a Buddhist concept. I was like, well, what the hell does that mean? What am I? You know, I was taught in my culture, even if you're not Christian, you kind of believe in like your soul. But I realized that that soul traps you in an isolation. No matter what happens, even after your body goes, your soul is still something like isolated. It goes someplace else and hangs out with other souls, but it's still isolated. But you get rid of that idea of a immortal self, and suddenly you truly are everything. When you become nothing, you are everything. Castaneda. And yeah, I really love that. (laughs) And in that vein, you know, in Buddhism, they don't teach reincarnation. They teach rebirth. And it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. I'm not going to say I've completely wrapped my mind around it. They compare it to like if you have a candle lit and you light another candle with it. You know, it's is the second candle the first candle? No, but the second candle couldn't be lit without the first candle. It's a continuity of sorts. And they say that rebirth isn't just something that happens when you die. You already are familiar with death. There's no need to fear death. If somebody holds up a picture of you as a baby and says, is this you? You would probably say, yeah, that's me. But the baby saw the world differently, acted differently in the world, looks completely different. Um had different ideas, different needs, different wants, is, is more different from you, that, that baby in that picture, than pretty much any of the adults around you at that moment. It's completely different. So what do you mean by self? That baby had to die, had to go away, had to end for the toddler to be born. The toddler 
uh, likewise had to die for the child to be born, had to die for the teenager to be born, had to die for the adult, etc. So there's no reason to be scared of this this dramatic death, you know, dramatic in the way like some changes are more dramatic than others like puberty. The old old man, old woman has to die for the new thing to be born, which may be the insects, the plants, back to the sun, which returns and becomes something else. It's always been something. You're already familiar with this process. We've just just been taught to be blind to it. So all these, these ideas of self, I feel like, are the heart of animism, extended sense of self. And uh, is there anything you want to add to that before I move on? Well, it reminds me, too, in our language, we still say things like, oh, but that was a lifetime ago, or that was another life. And whether or not that person believes in reincarnation or rebirth, we recognize it. And in tribes, there was a name for you when you were a baby, but maybe when you reached puberty, you took on a different name. And then maybe when you fought, you became a warrior, you took on a different name. And even still, in your later years, you took on another name. So it's like a dying away and a blossoming of something from that original source. Yeah, and Buddhism really helped me to get questioning what we mean by self and animism kind of put the final like nails in the well, I don't, don't want to say final, it's still a process, but they fed into each other for me. They they spoke the same truth. Um, this idea that I am so much bigger and I don't need to fear death because these constricted thoughts are used to control us and they keep us afraid. They keep us doing things that we might not choose to do because we're afraid. We don't need to be afraid. We need to remember the connections and our obligations to this bigger sense of self and think how much different it would be if back to Derek Jensen and language older than words, we knew that our sense of self was actually the whole universe and that everything spoke. Everything was as intelligent and important as us. So I hope I'm explaining all these different philosophies and the overlap I'm trying to convey because they're all talking about the same thing, which I find to be, from my understanding right now, we aren't experts on this by any means, but my understanding at the moment of animism. And Gumby, when you said, like, we we don't need to be afraid, it reminded me of this really beautiful example. I was um, I was researching for one of the president's podcasts, and I came across this uh, slave rebellion revolt in 1803, and it's known as the Igbo, I-G-B-O, sometimes it's also spelled Igbo, um, revolt that happened off the coast of South Carolina. So there were about 75 people who were captured from a tribe in Africa that uh, it's, it would be in modern-day Nigeria. And they went through all the horrors of the Middle Passage coming over the Atlantic Ocean, and they even reached Savannah, Georgia, and I, I'm guessing the auction block, because after that, they were put back on another smaller boat to be taken to where they would be working on the plantation. Now, the Igbo or Igbo people, they were known for being fiercely against the chattel slavery 
And who wouldn't be? I mean, I don't think it was just them, but they they were known for being fiercely independent. And they revolted against the crew, the ship's crew, killing all of the crew. And it ended up that the boat ran aground off the coast of, um, it was either South Carolina or um, Georgia. It would make more sense. It would make more sense that it's Georgia. Um, I think it was Dunbar's Island or something like that. Well, after the boat ran aground, um, it was said by several uh, eyewitness accounts of that time that all of the Igbo got off the boat and singing in their own language, the water brought us here, the water will take us home. They walked into the nearby creek and en masse drowned themselves. And there was another account years later um, for one of those like uh, writers' projects where they're they're like taking down people's uh, remembrances of history. And so this man who was born in 1844 and he he was giving this account in 1930, they call it a myth, but you can believe whatever you want. He said, "Oh, you didn't hear about the the Ipo people? Um, they actually were." They were down there, and they decided that they were going to go home, so they turned into buzzards and flew away. And regardless of, you know, what it's called, I just feel like that is an amazing testament to to not being afraid, to recognizing that everything is everything. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful story. And, uh, you know, when we when Teresa was showing me that story, it was called a myth. Yeah. And uh, when our very own scientists who are developing our technology tell us that we are vastly made of empty space um, (laughs) in a universe like that, I find anything possible, and I choose to believe they did become birds. I see no reason not to. Um, Were you done with that, Teresa? Yeah. So the first time I encountered animism, I want to give full credit to Daniel Quinn and the story of B. I believe this is the first time I encountered the idea and the word. So I wanted to read a few passages of what he writes about animism. In one part, uh, part of the book labeled animism, he writes, There once was a universal religion on this planet, Jared, B said. Were you aware of that? I said I wasn't. Audiences are almost always amazed by this news. Occasionally, someone will think I'm referring to what is sometimes called the old religion, paganism, Wicca, but of course I'm not. In the first place, paganism isn't old. It's a farmer's religion through and through, which means it's just a few thousand years old. And of course, it was never a universal religion, for the simple reason that farming was never universal. Very often, almost invariably in fact, no one will even recognize the name of the religion I'm talking about, which of course is animism. They've literally never heard of it. And I believe that was my first introduction to the word animism. Um, 148. Let me take a moment to find my next page number. Um, And he goes on to say at another point in the book, Excellent. I've called animism a religion, but there's a very real sense in which animism as a religion is an invention of taker culture, an intellectual construct. Why is that? I told you that animism was once a universal religion on this planet. It's still universal among lever peoples, peoples you identify as primitive, stone age, and so on. But if you go among these people and ask them if they're animists, they won't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. 
And in fact, if you suggest that they and their neighbors have the same religious beliefs, they'll probably think you're crazy. This is because, like neighbors everywhere, they tend to be much more aware of their differences than their similarities. (laughs) It's the same with your revealed religions. To you, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism look very different. But to me, they look the same. Many of you would say that something like Buddhism doesn't even belong in this list. I'd say that. Since it doesn't link salvation to divine worship. But to me, this is just a quibble. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism all perceive human beings as flawed, wounded creatures in need of salvation, and all rely fundamentally on revelations that spell out how salvation is to be attained, either by departing from this life or by rising above it. And as I've said before, I have a lot more uh, appreciation for Buddhism than Quinn does, but he makes a really good point. You know, I see what he's he's describing here. Um, a couple more things in the story of B. The story of B is just a brilliant book. Um, By the way, it's uh, on the recommended reading list on our website, and there is a link for the uh, digital copy if you're trying to, uh, I guess, save some money there. <laughs> you could also mm-hmm. check your local library. Um Yeah, he goes on to say in another part of the book, 10,000 years ago, this region was the home of a Mesolithic people whose name we'll never know. Dig in the ground and you'll find their hand axes and spearheads. These were leavers, of course, animists, and they knew where to find the god of this place. The god of this place is here, Jared. They didn't look in the sky or on Mount Olympus. They looked here, where we're sitting. You know, and this is like what we're describing, this physicality. It it doesn't require faith. God is here. That's his face. What more than a miracle could, you know, I mean, think about the things surrounding us, like the sun, for instance, you know? There are just so many miracles to be found, and what other than a miracle could, um, I don't know, be God? So I love what he's describing here, you know? This is where I started falling in love with animism is through these very descriptions. 82. I've got a lot of little passages that I wanted to share. And he says in another part of the book of animism, they'd never have to explain who and what they were to their own children. But if they did, they'd say something like this. We know you look for us and call us men and women, but this is only our appearance, for we're not men and women. We're deer. The flesh that grows on our bones is the flesh of deer, for it's made from the flesh of the deer we've eaten. The eyes that move in our heads are the eyes of deer, and we look at the world in their stead and see what they might have seen. The fire of life that once burned in the deer now burns in us, and we live their lives and walk in their tracks across the hand of God. This is why we're the people of the deer. The deer aren't our prey or our possessions. They're us. They're us at one point in the cycle of life, and we are them at another point in the cycle. The deer are twice your parents, for your mother and father are deer. And the deer that gave you its life today was mother and father to you as well, since you wouldn't be here if it weren't for that deer. I mean, that just, it gives me chills when I think about that. Um, you know, to think of things in those terms, the reverence, and it's, it, it feels true, you know, when I hear that. What is your flesh composed of? As Daniel Quinn says, it, it wasn't made of feathers and fairy dust and iron shavings. It's the flesh that you imbibe. You are made of deer and plants. Um, that's what the biomass that composes you is made of. I, I've, I've had arguments with people that get condescending with me, and they, they, they seem to think they're the scientific ones, and I'm being mystical. 
to me, I don't know what the hell they're even thinking, where they're coming from, because it couldn't be more scientific, more practical, more literal. Um, let's see. One, two. So here's a part that I really liked, and hopefully I found the right part. The important thing to realize is that this isn't grass, Jared. This is deer and bison and sheep and cicadas and moles and rabbits. Reach down and grab a handful. Go ahead, at least mentally. Have you got it? That's a mouse. And the mouse, the ox, the gazelle, the goat, and the beetle all burn with the fire of grass, Jared. Grass is their mother and father, and their young are grass. One thing, grass and grasshopper. One thing, grasshopper and sparrow. One thing, sparrow and fox. One thing, fox and vulture. One thing, Jared, and its name is fire, burning today as a stalk in the field, tomorrow as a rabbit in its burrow, and the next day as an 11-year-old girl named Shirin. The, vul- the vulture is fox, the fox grasshopper, the grasshopper rabbit, the rabbit girl, the girl grass. All together, we're the life of this place, indistinguishable from one another, intermingling in the flow of fire, and the fire is God. Not God with a capital G, but rather one of the gods with a little g. Not the creator of the universe, but the animator of this single place. To each of us is given its moment in the blaze. Jared, it sparked to be surrendered to another when it's sent, so that the blaze may go on. None may deny it sparked to the general blaze and live forever, not any at all. Certainly not me, for all my giant intellect. Each, each is sent to another someday. You are sent, Jared. Lewis? You're on your way, both of you. I too am sent. To the wolf or the cougar or the vulture or the beetle or the grasses, I am sent. I'm sent and I thank you all, grasses in all your forms, fire in all your forms, sparrows and rabbits and mosquitoes and butterflies and salmon and rattlesnakes for sharing yourselves with me for this time. And I'm bringing it all back, every last atom paid in full, and I appreciate the loan. My life will be the life, my death will be the life of another, Jared. I swear that to you. And you watch. You come find me, because I'll be standing again in these grasses, and you'll see me looking through the eyes of the fox, and taking the air with the eagle, and running in the track of the deer. Kind of reminds me of that poem we started with. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, that, to me, just kind of captures it. Um, that impermeab- that interpenetration, that's the word I was looking for, that I'm, I'm describing. You know, there are not these separate borders. We are made of each other. Um, God, as soon as I read those words, I knew that I was on to something. I had to learn more about animism. And I'd say that's a big part of what Teresa and I are doing out here, living in a van, trying to be closer to nature. It's part of what we're after, what we want to let in more into our lives. That's what I'm trying to find my way back to, is this. Um, not just knowing how to make bow drill parts or whatever, although that can be part of it, but to get back into that true way of being in the universe. Over to you, Teresa. Well, I loved how Gumby um, described this to me, and I'll I'll, uh, give way to his explanation if I miss anything, but this is a quote from Weston Labar, and his quote is, the first religion is to kill God and eat him. And Gumby's always like, do you know what, like, what does that mean to you, Teresa? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) 
But the way that Gumby described it was, um, at least the parts that I remember, was what we've been talking about, how God or the whatever, the spirit that moves in all things is everywhere. So the sun, the tree, the, the deer, the fox. And Gumby was also telling me about how it's a way for people who rely on on those animals, on those plants, everything. We're, we have to murder them. We have to kill them to survive. And how reverent is it to think about each animal that's killed for, for us to survive, each plant that's killed for us to, to survive, is God. And that becomes part of us. And... I guess I'm. I think Gumby would do a better job at describing this, but I, I just really love that sentiment. No, actually, I was all prepared to jump over here and like uh, fill in the description, but I think you nailed it as far as what I'd have to say. That was a really good. Um, I mean, <laughs> as far as I know, <laughs> good by my standards. So, get that. Mm-hmm. One more part of the story of B I wanted to share, um, and this is a whole passage, but it's right at the end and. Part of the book is about this, uh, you might say prophet, a, uh, a person that is called B, and B changes depending on who's got the message and how they choose to express this message. So there's like, in the course of this book, there are three different Bs that take the title, and B is someone who is uh, threatening this church in the book. They actually send the main character, Jared, who is a, a priest, um, to investigate this person who may be the Antichrist, who may be, you know, their their philosophy and the things they're they're mentioning are so dangerous to establish thought that the church is wondering, do we need to do something about it? And they eventually do, but I'll let you read the book. But with that premise, that little bit of background, I'll read this, and this is uh, towards the end, and the question is asked, is B the Antichrist? Now at last we're ready to tackle this most difficult problem that so many of you have brought to me for a solution. Again and again you say to me, tell me how to face those who accuse. Tell me how to explain that you are not the Antichrist. You have to begin by understanding what the Antichrist stands for. All serious commentators on the subject agree that Antichrist is just the latest name for an ancient figure in the religious legends of our culture, far more ancient than the Christ to which this name makes him opposed. In other words, he doesn't just represent the antithesis of Jesus. All our salvationist religions have feared the appearance of one who would lead the righteous from the paths of salvation. The Antichrist isn't just the antithesis of Jesus. He's equally the antithesis of Buddha, of Elijah, of Moses, of Muhammad, of Nanak, of Joseph Smith, of Maharaji, thank you, (laughs) of all saviors and purveyors of salvation in the world. He is, in fact, the anti-savior. Accompanying the legend of the Antichrist has been the bizarre and almost laughable notion that his massive global appeal will be his unbridled wickedness. This shows what a low opinion our salvationist religions have of their members. This is how they despise us, that they think we yearn for evil and vileness and corruption and will slavishly follow anyone who promises these things. So now I'm ready at last to tell you how to face the accusers of B. When they say to you, B is the Antichrist, don't think you're doing something admirable if you say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. These accusers do understand. When they say to you, B is the Antichrist, 
Here's what you should say to them. Say to them, yes, you're right. Absolutely right. B means to steal the hearts of the people away from you so that the world may live. B means to gather the voices of humans all over the planet into one voice singing, the world must live, the world must live. We are only one species among billions. The gods don't love us more than they love spiders or bears or whales or water lilies. The age of the great forgetting has ended with all its lies and delusions have been dispelled. Now we remember who we are. Our kin are not cherubim, seraphim, thrones, principalities, and powers. Our kin are mayflies, lemurs, snakes, eagles, and badgers. The blinding we suffered and the great forgetting has abated, so we no longer imagine that man was ill-made. We no longer imagine that the gods botched their work when it came to us. We no longer think that they know how to make every single thing in the whole vast universe except a human being. The blinding was we suffered and the great forgetting has passed, so we can no longer live as though nothing matters but us. We can no longer believe that suffering is the lot the gods had in mind for us. We can no longer believe that death is sweet release to our true destiny. We no longer yearn for the nothingness of nirvana. We no longer dream of wearing crowns of gold in the royal court of heaven. Say to them, you're right to see that we're straying from the path of salvation. We're straying from the path exactly as you always feared we might. But listen, we're not straying from the path of salvation for the sake of sin and corruption, as you always imagined we might. We're straying from the path of salvation because we remember that we once belonged to the world and were content in that belonging. We're straying from the path of salvation, but not for love of vice and wickedness, as you contemptuously imagined we might. We're straying from the path of salvation for love of the world, as you never once dreamed in a thousand years of dreaming. The evangelist John wrote, you must not love the world or the things of the world, for those who love the world are strangers to the love of the Father. Then, just two sentences later, he wrote, Children, the final hour is at hand. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. He's not one, but many. And when the many of him are among us, you'll know the final hour has come. John knew what he was talking about. He was right to warn his followers against those who love the world. We are the ones he was talking about, and this is the final hour. But it's their final hour, not ours. They've had their day, and this is indeed the final hour of that day. Now our day begins. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what a great what passage. A yeah, I mean, it's just like, it, I, I am filled with such optimism because all around us we see our culture disintegrating, and it's a panicky, scary thing because no matter what your beliefs are, no matter what my beliefs are, we were born into this culture. We're tied to it, and it's scary to see everything you know falling apart, but it reminds me of what's on the other side of it. It's always darkest before the dawn. And all of this that we've been talking about, um, describing animism, it's, it's almost, well, so many words are, like it's hard to describe without describing other things that are it. Um, and in one of our episodes, I believe it was Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps, we mentioned Wetico, and we probably mentioned it before that, too. Um, Wetico is, in short, the, the illness that our culture has, all of us, even Gumby. What? Yeah, you're <coughs> sick. Um, and Wetico is kind of the opposite of animism. Animism looking at everything as life. Everything is alive. This table is alive. The the iPad is alive. It came from parts uh, that were from this earth, the metals. 
It came from the sun, the technology of fire. Everything is alive in, in an animistic perspective. But from a Wetico perspective, what our culture does, we have to think, as Gumby mentioned earlier, that everything is dead. Otherwise, it would be so overwhelming. So you can kind of begin to, to see how animism is in opposition to Wetico. Yeah, I've come to believe that animism, you know, I, I started really being interested in Wetico and, you know, then it's like, what do you do with it? If we have the sickness, if we're all absolutely stark raving mad, what's to be done? And the more I studied animism and realized the implications of it, I'm like, this is the antidote of Wetico. Wetico, the whole poison, it's also called a cannibal sickness. It is the ultimate extreme of selfishness. I can take, I can take, I owe nothing, I'm separate, I don't even need to take care of my neighbors, my own tribe. Um, it is the complete objectification. It is what Derek Jensen describes in a language older than words. Um, so... <laughs> Teresa's distracting me. Oh, sorry. Um, but yeah, that language altered in the words. It is the complete objectification of the world around us. Um, that is Wetico. You you can't act like a Wetico unless you see the world is dead. It's a type of black magic. It's it's evil. Um, and animism is the complete opposite. It's such an expanded sense of self that everything is a part of you. Um, it's not about personal power because that doesn't even make sense. It's about being part of the ultimate power. To me, that's animism, part of this universe, inhabiting your body and through that body, this connection of um, just everything. So that's why in Five Easy Steps, I said I thought animism was the most important thing. I think this is what is lacking the most and what we need the most back. Um, so... I wanted to share a poem that was written in the beginning of, I believe that was Becoming Animal by David Abram, that I thought was a really good um, evocative poem of this, this kind of idea. It's by Robert Bringhurst. He writes, Voice, the breath's tooth. Thought, the brain's bone. Bird song, an extension of the beak. Speech. The antler of the mind. Um, That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I just love the the dance there. You know, the indistinguishableness, <laughs> if that's I can use that as a word, between the physical and the abstract. You know, the thought and the antler is just, I don't know, there's something so poetically animistic in that idea. Mm-hmm. And... You know, going along with all we've said about animism, it's no wonder that when we look at babies, at children, they are born. We are born animists. It's our natural state. And Gumby wrote that the Prada also can be called the hungry ghost. Yeah, this is an idea in Buddhism, Prada, the hungry ghost. It's said that that's a state that we're in. It's a part of us that uh, is never satisfied. And I, as I was studying that and then studying Wetico, I'm like, I think this is the same thing. Mm. The cannibal sickness, the, the appetite that just eats and eats and eats. And no matter how much it eats, it's never good enough. It needs to eat more. The Leviathan, the hungry ghost. Yeah, it's the curse, the hungry ghost. The cannibal. And, you know, I'll let you finish. 
I, I was just going to add, um, you were mentioning before about the assemblage point that Castaneda talks about and how quieting the internal or inner dialogue can enable someone who's studying um, with, a, with a sorcerer, with the Yaqui ways to be able to become a raven or a crow, shapeshift. And I feel like what is our potential if we weren't to indoctrinate kids into this way? Yeah, we even see it like working with older kids, like eight years old. But, you know, when you pay attention to the way a kid acts, it's our natural way of being in the world is to be an animist. We're born with this, I don't want to call it a religion, but this... uh this understanding, this relationship with the universe. You know, a kid plays with toys. A kid knows that everything's alive. A kid knows that its teddy bear has life. Um, a kid, you know, talks to the dog like it's an equal. Um, we're wired for this. It has to be taught out of us, which to me is a big indication that it's an unnatural thing that's happening. And we even, Gumby and I were talking the other day about the act of naming and its pros and cons because. Um, when we were, well, still to this day, like we have the happy creek that we've named or the dark road, the different places that we go to, whether it's for, you know, bathing or sleeping and thinking about the pros and cons of giving names to places, to bodies of water, to certain trees, whether it looks like a boss or it looks like a, the arms and hands of a flamenco dancer, um, Without, the yeah, the flamenco tree. I used to dance flamenco, so it uh, it spoke to me. At least I think it spoke to me. And that's where we get into kind of the uh, the cons side of naming things, because if we're not truly listening, we're just sticking labels on things. We're just naming it whatever we want, and that wouldn't be animistic. Yeah, David Abram points out, and yeah, I guess we're going to talk a little bit more very soon about uh, the effect of literacy on animistic cultures, but he points out that already by the story of uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, that he finds it very significant that Adam doesn't go around and ask the names of things. He gives names mm -hmm. to things. So we're already starting to see that separation, that things are dead, things do not speak, um, this movement away from an animistic understanding of the universe. You're done with that? Yes. Another quote I wanted to share by Daniel Quinn. Um, he says, and this is from his book, Tales of Adam, which is a really interesting book. If any man tells you that he knows the whole of the law of life or that he can encompass it in words, that man is a fool or a liar because the law of life is written in the universe and no man can know the whole of it. If ever you're in doubt about the law, consult the caterpillar or the gull or the jackal. No man will ever know it better or follow it more steadfastly than they. And that was interesting because, like I said, the name of the book is Tales of Adam. And um, he, his premise is that the story of the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve and all that, is about a lever culture, an indigenous culture. And um, it's kind of explaining the dawn of our civilization 10,000 years ago people who are now cursed by the gods to live by the the sweat of their brow, <laughs> to toil by the sweat of their brow. I don't know if that's, is that right? <laughs> I got it right. Oh. I got it right that time. But yeah, that was a, a very interesting 
And I love that he's uh, recognizing the great mystery. You know, no man can encompass the whole of this law. And if you ever want to know parts of it, you know, just like earlier when we we're talking about losing these these animals that are teachers, they have um, all these parts of it that we can consult, we can remember if we develop that relationship. And I like how, again, it's talking about listening. Like, go go ask the caterpillar. Go ask. Um, because we don't know it all. And if you if you think you do, you're you kind of become dead yourself. At least that's how I look at it. Yeah, and that, you know, the biggest enemy to a person of knowledge is self importance. I mean, to me that's a big indication that self importance is rearing its ugly head as if you presume to think you know the whole of the law of life. Another quote that um, is kinda interesting because it again describes a way of like stopping before we label things, listening before we just assume and and, and take control. This comes from uh, The Art of Dreaming by Carlos Castaneda. They come in search of potential awareness. They have consciousness and purpose, although it is incomprehensible to our minds, comparable perhaps to the consciousness and purpose of trees. The inner speed of trees and inorganic beings is incomprehensible to us because it is infinitely slower than ours. What would make you say that, Don Juan? Both trees and inorganic beings last longer than we do. They are made to stay put. They are immobile, yet they make everything move around them. Do you mean, Don Juan, that Inorganic beings are stationary like trees? Certainly. What you see in dreaming as bright or dark sticks are their projections. What you hear as the voice of the dreaming emissary is equally their projection, and so are their scouts. For some unfathomable reason, I was overwhelmed by these statements. I was suddenly filled with anxiety. I asked Don Juan if trees also had projections like that. They do, he said. Their projections are, however, even less friendly to us than those of the inorganic beings. Dreamers never seek them unless they're in a state of profound amenity with trees, which is a very difficult state to attain. We have no friends on this earth, you know. He chuckled and added, it's no mystery, why? Well, it may not be a mystery to you, Don Juan, but it certainly is to me. We are destructive. We have antagonized every living being on this earth. That's why we have no friends. And that whole quote, uh, Gumby and I were talking about, just there are some people, including us, that um, we (laughs) just dump soup everywhere. Um, We might think that, oh, I love to go around and hug trees, and trees are my friends, and, you know, the rocks and the river, they're my friends, but... That's really, again, our projection, our labeling of things. And to really be able to listen, to open yourself completely to the knowledge, to the, to the fact that maybe they're not our friend. Maybe these things are, in fact, feeling very hostile towards us, toward our actions. 
Yeah, <clears throat> that was the thing I found very unique about that quote is to consider that we've done damage, you know, that the, it's not just nature that's like, oh, just waiting for us to come back, you know, that we actually have some work to do, that we've actually made some enemies. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Um, so as we talked about, Abram talks about um, the effect that literacy has had, and he believes it has come with a big price. And uh, I'm a bookworm myself. I'm always reading things. So this is something that, uh, you know, was not easy for me to take in. And I still read. I still love reading. I derive so much information from it. But it's really interesting to consider um, how it may affect an animistic way of being in the world. So let's see. Um, in here we have, um, he writes, when we ponder the early Semitic Aleph Beth, we readily recognize its pictographic inheritance. Uh, yeah, I think we got the wrong page here, but the animistic origin. Okay. Let's see what we got here. But one of the things he he talks about is um, how even our alphabet, you know, that we're so familiar with, it started off with these pictographs that were related to the natural world. So in other words, they represented things that we physically saw in our everyday lives. Um, And even now, the memory is still there. For instance, um, there was a letter called Aleph, which is Hebrew for ox, and it was depicted by the horns of this animal. Now turned upside down, it has become our letter A. Another letter um, was called Mem, which is Hebrew for water. And this became our letter M. You see the the shape of the waves in M. You have Ayin, which is Hebrew for I, which the open eye became our letter O. And Kof, Hebrew for monkey, the little tail hanging down becomes our letter Q. So these letters, this way of recording knowledge became more and more abstract. Um, and it removed us from the world. So the first step away from the world is to have these pictures that represent things out in the world. You know, like the monkey, the eye, the ox. We're like, okay, that's, that's a monkey, that's an eye. And it still relates us directly to a physical, sensuous universe. But as time progressed and we developed this literacy, we took another step back and another step back and another step back until now, A doesn't represent an ox to us anymore. We don't see an ox in A. We don't see anything in the letter A that ties us into the physical universe. We've completely abstracted it. And the same with all the other letters. Um, Let's see. Page 113. He writes this really interesting piece here where he describes, this is uh, David Abram talking in The Spell of the Sensuous. Plato himself affects a powerful critique of the influence of writing in the Phaedrus, that dialogue from which I quoted earlier in this chapter. In the course of that dialogue, Socrates relates to the young Phaedrus a curious legend regarding the Egyptian king Thamus. According to this story, Thamus was approached directly by the god Thoth. 
the divine inventor of geometry, mathematics, astronomy, and writing, who offers writing as a gift to the king so that Thamus may offer it in turn to the Egyptian people. But Thamus, after considering both the beneficent and the baneful aspects of the gods' inventions, concludes that his people will be much better off without writing, and so he refuses the gift. Against Thoth's claim that writing will make people wiser and improve their memory, the king asserts that the very opposite is the case. If men learn this, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. Hmm. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written, calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. Moreover, according to the king, spoken teachings, once written down, easily find their way into the hands of those who will misunderstand those teachings, while nevertheless thinking that they understand them. Thus the written letters bring not wisdom, but only the conceit of wisdom, making men seem to know much when in fact they know little. My God, see, that to me is a profound insight. Think of all the holy books. You know, it's written right there, like a better way to be, and nobody follows it. And yet, everybody within that religion, that philosophy, will quote from these books. (laughs) They don't have the wisdom. It's written down. They just vomit it back and regurgitate it. So this literacy has come with a big price and has been partly a death blow to our animistic existence in the world. Instead of speaking to the things around us, reading the land as a tracker, um, it's become a much more closed loop. All we hear and understand and talk to are ourselves. The written words, because the birds aren't writing, the trees aren't writing, the foxes aren't writing, and we've forgotten how to communicate with these entities. Mm. We read what we write. And did you mention about the vowels? You were talking, I heard about the different letters. Oh, I did letters. not. No. Well, good. Um, David Abram, he, he really put together a special book um, of observations. And Gumby shared with you the um, some of the, the letters, some of the consonants. Well, I guess there are the O and the A. Um, but in the Hebrew language, uh, they didn't have the specific sounds for vowels, and forgive me if I'm messing this up, but from what I understand, vowels were left up to the reader to determine like what the sound is, to breathe life into the written consonants to make the words come alive. So vowels were the sounded breath of these ideas. But be that as it may, it's still not looking at the different animals, the different peoples of this world. Um, I was even briefly learning about like uh, Japanese writing and the characters of like the Chinese alphabet and where all of those different symbols came from. And it's so easy for us to forget. I didn't know anything about these different letters where they came from. And then to just forget about it as we write notes for the podcast, like these were symbolic. They held so much of a sensuous meaning, and now they're just dead on a page. Um, Something else that we've forgotten uh, to much extent are our festivals, our celebrations of nature, of life. So to speak of equinoxes and a solstice, 
we hear people saying like, oh, it's, you know, it's solstice, happy solstice, or, oh, it's going to be the equinox, let's have a party. You hear some people say that. Um, But there's also these times of the year called quaternaries. And those were more the times when the seasons presented themselves. Because if you think about like the, the spring equinox, it's not, it doesn't usually feel like springtime, but on May 1st, which is the quaternary for, um, for May Day celebrations where they erect a maypole and they dance and they remember the gods and goddesses of the flowers, of, of the feelings of springtime, of fertility. Um, you can also, uh, we don't have, let's see, in our culture, we don't have the celebration in early August. Um, it became the Feast of the Assumption, which is for uh, the Virgin Mary. But um, we do have Halloween, um, which is Samhain, I believe it's pronounced, in the Celtic beliefs. And let's see, early February is uh, Candlemas. But most of these, we've forgotten. We've forgotten the origins of these celebrations that connected us. And again, how vital ritual can be to bringing that animistic uh, experience back to our lives, that sensual experience. Gumby, do you have anything to add about the... uh... All right. Well, I already did that. So one thing that I talked about, I'm not going to spend too much time on, but I felt like I couldn't do an animus podcast without giving a nod to this, is uh, Robin Kimmerer of the Potawatomi people um, talks about, and you can Google this, I think it's Leaves of Grass, or the Grass Teachings, the Teachings of Grass. I think Leaves of Grass is Walt Whitman. But she talks about the honorable harvest, and I love this animistic way of gathering plants. She says, first, introduce yourself. You know, like, um, again, the biggest enemy is self-importance. So if you feel embarrassed talking to a plant, that's a great opportunity to work on your self-importance. That's why you feel embarrassed. You think you're better than that plant. So introduce yourself. Um, Never take the first one. You know, like, don't be desperate. Don't be greedy. Don't be, don't, don't act like you have that cannibal sickness. Mm. You know, like, I want the first one and I want the last one and I want everything in between. Mm. Like, go past the first one, you know, give it respect, appreciate it for what it is. And, you know, find the one meant for you. It's an invitation to take your time, to be mindful. Um, Ask permission and then listen for an answer. So if you ask permission, can I take this one? And you feel a little feeling of like, ah, it doesn't feel right. Listen. You're not really asking if you don't listen. Mm -hmm. Um, Take only what you need. So if you need, you know, enough for a salad for that night, don't, like, plan on stocking your fridge. You know, we have this mentality um, of of impoverishment. That fear. Yeah, that fear of the morrow that the Bible talks about, you know, worry not for the morrow. Oh, we worry for the morrow like motherfuckers. <laughs> so, you know, don't worry for the morrow. Take what you need right now. Um, someone else, animal or human, might have a greater need and need, you know, that to be there for them. Use everything taken. Honor it. So even if you... Use it for what you planned, and there's something extra. Change your plans. Find a way to use it. And, you know, I'm not saying this for my high 
high horse. You know, we have been guilty of this and had extra stuff go bad, but it is not a good way to be in the world. We are not being good animists or good human beings when we do this. Um, minimize harm. Find ways to do this that, you know, like I've even heard like use scissors to collect rather than tear. Think about if somebody like had to remove an arm from your body, you know. I mean, you, you don't want the arm going either way, but it's going to be a lot better if they like cut it with a clean knife, a sharp knife, than if they just wrench it and, from your body. Find ways to have less impact. Just look for that. Consider that. Um, be grateful. You know, express your gratitude. Recognize that you are not entitled to this that you're lucky to have this. Something has been given. Share what you've taken. Don't be miserly. You know, if you have neighbors, if you have family, what, whoever is in your circle, share. Um, even if it's your dog, find some way to like make it not about you. Extend that circle of self. And finally, reciprocate the gift. Give something back. Um, you know, for us, like there are places we go that we, we shit in the woods. <laughs> And I like to remind myself when I'm shitting in the woods, it's not just for me. I obviously need to take a crap, but I'm, I'm enriching the soil too. You know, recognize that you are part of this reciprocal relationship and always be on the lookout because you have a debt. If you're alive and you're hearing these words, many things have sacrificed and given things for you. Many, many, many things. You have a debt. Look for ways to repay it because you'll have opportunities to repay it as well. Um, okay, yeah. Teresa? Mm-hmm. There was another quote that I wanted to share, and this one is about water specifically. And this comes from uh, David Abrams' other book, Becoming Animal. It says, here are some observations made by a member of the Matol, I'm hoping that's how you pronounce it, the Matol Indians, an Athabascan tribe that traditionally hunted and fished along the Matol and Bear Rivers near the northern coast of California. The water watches you and has a definite attitude, favorable or otherwise, toward you. Do not speak just before a wave breaks. Do not speak to passing rough water in a stream. Do not look at water very long for any one time, unless you've been to this spot ten times or more. Then the water there is used to you and does not mind if you're looking at it. Older men can talk in the presence of the water because they've been around so long that the water knows them. My cold hands can't turn the page. (laughs) It's a sign I need to slow down and warm my hands. So older men um, can talk in the presence of water because they've been around so long that the water knows them. Until the water at any spot does know you, however, it becomes very rough if you talk in its presence or look at it too long. And I just felt like this morning, um, it is so cold right now. It was just above freezing. Yeah, we've got a cold front coming in, bringing some rain. And since we started this podcast, the temperature is plummeting. <laughs> and Gumby bathed in the creek this morning. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my balls to drop again. <laughs> but I was just wandering around, and we go to this creek a lot. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about water in our in our lives in a little bit, but I just loved that quote because even if I haven't done that, I can still now try to remember and practice that and just be around the water and not look at it too long um, and be reverent of it because it is a being just like I am. 
Yeah, what I find valuable in that quote isn't so much to try to follow in an arbitrary way, like, okay, like, oh, I got to visit 10 times. Right, uh, right, right. But just the idea of treating water, like the idea of caring what water thinks about you. You know, are you being rude to the water? That's what I found valuable in that quote. Right. Um, Don Miguel Ruiz, I've mentioned him before. He wrote the Fifth Agreement and the Four Agreements. But in the Fifth Agreement, um, I really like a lot of what he says in there. And he describes us as sorcerers. He says we are magical beings. All of us are sorcerers. Um, And one of the things he describes, and I believe this is the first agreement in his first book, is to... Be mindful of your speech, basically. I forget mm-hmm. how he words it, but to, to pay attention to what you say, because every time you speak, you are casting a spell. Exactly. Now, again, this is from Animistic Origins. This is actually tied into uh, Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda. He's part of the same Yaqui lineage. So these are part of the same body of beliefs, which go back to that indigenous, you know, their expression of animistic beliefs. And think about that. Think about that you are a magical being. You are a sorcerer, and every word that comes out of your mouth mouth is casting a spell. It's shaping the future. You know, every word of love, every word of defiance, every word of hate, every word of uh, bigotry, anything that comes out of your mouth is casting a spell. Um, And it's got a lot to do with the environment around you of how powerful that spell is. So I found that to be a very, you know, I, I read that poem by Robert Bringhurst, I think, mm-hmm. where he says, oh, damn, Teresa changed my page. Um, speech, the antler of the mind. You know, the antler of the mind when you talk. You are actually physically putting something out there. You know, you are changing the world. It has a physical presence. Your words have power. So, Teresa? <clears throat> Oh, and I just wanted to um, say again, like speaking about the words that we have cast a spell on ourselves of forgetting, of forgetting our animistic roots. Like Quinn, the great forgetting. Exactly. (laughs) You have so many noodles in your beard. Um, And we talked briefly about like the festivals and all of these connections. And we have just buried it in our minds, but it's still there. And the world, the most important thing, the world is still full of wonder and it is still an enchanting place to live. And Gumby has a quote that he wanted to read. I do? Yes. Where is that? Page 87. I have it right there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wanted to say a little bit more about what Teresa was talking about. That to me, it occurs to me that I believe we are magical beings, not exclusively every creature out there. And that's the universe I'm going to live in. I'm a sorcerer surrounded by sorcerers. There's nothing but sorcery happening around me. It's a magical, re-enchanted uh, place. And the black magic we've worked is to imagine that there's no magic. Mm. It's like the spell of blindness we've we've descended upon ourselves. And this internal dialogue we're talking about, this weaving of spells with our words, we have imagined that we have no power. But the very way you act when you imagine that your actions don't have powerful consequences is black magic. It creates the world that we're in right now, which has got all of us kind of freaked out, to say the least. Um, 
So this quote, let's see, page 87. Yeah, so this is um, from a Inuit woman interviewed by Nude Rasmussen in the early 20th century. And she's of the, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Nalungiuk um, tribe. And this quote comes from The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. She said to this ethnologist, In the very earliest time, when both people and animals lived on Earth, a person could become an animal if he wanted to, and an animal could become a human being. Sometimes they were people, and sometimes animals, and there was no difference. All spoke the same language. That was the time when words were like magic. The human mind had mysterious powers. A word spoken by chance might have strange consequences. It would suddenly come alive, and what people wanted to happen could happen. All you had to do was say it. Nobody could explain this. That's the way it was. So, from a whole different area of the world, here's another recognition of a similar truth. Words have power. She's describing an enchanted world, a magical world, where you better be careful what you say. Mm -hmm. Don't just say mindless things, because you are creating your reality. And... You know, as Don Miguel points out in the Fifth Agreement, this holds just as much truth to being mindful of what you say in your own head. So it's not just what you put out in the world, which is powerful, but also what you're putting in your head, which is powerful as well. Mm. And I loved this next quote. Um, This is a passage from, again, David Abram, Becoming Animal. And this one just really blew me away. Ah, all right, so... Shut up and say it. (laughs) To our indigenous ancestors and to the many aboriginal peoples that still hold fast to their oral traditions, language is less a human possession than it is a property of the animate earth itself, an expressive telluric power in which we, along with the coyotes and the crickets, all participate. Each creature enacts this expressive magic in its own manner. The honeybee with its waggle dance, no less than a bellicose harumphing sea lion. I like that, harumphing. Nor is this power restricted solely to animals. The whispered hush of the uncut grasses at dawn, the plaintive moan of trunks rubbing against one another in the deep woods, or the laughter of the birch leaves as the wind gusts through their branches, all bear a thicket of many-layered meanings for those who carefully listen. In the Pacific Northwest, I met a man who had schooled himself in the speech of needled evergreens. On a breezy day, you could drive him blindfolded to any patch of coastal forest and place him, still blind, beneath a particular tree. After a few moments, he would tell you by listening just what species of pine or spruce or fir stood above him, whether he stood beneath a Douglas fir or a grand fir, a Sitka spruce or a western red cedar. His ears were attuned, he said, to the different dialects of the tree. While I tell others of this man's gift, overeducated folks often object to his turn of phrase, protesting the foolishness of alluding to the different dialects of the conifers, as if there were actually a kind of spoken discourse in question. The rustling of needles, they point out, can hardly be considered the speech of a tree, since the sound is created not by the tree, 
but only by the wind blowing through the tree. Curiously, these clever persons seem not to notice that it is demonstrably the same when they speak. We talk, after all, only by shaping the exhaled air that rushed into our lungs a moment earlier. Human speech, too, is really the wind moving through. Yeah, I love that because I've had the same like conversation with myself when I hear the the wind blowing through the trees, thinking, "Oh man, that's beautiful. I love hearing the trees talk." And then like, well, is it the wind talking? But when he raises that question, it occurs to me like, "Wow, is it me talking or is it the wind talking?" <laughs> um, one of the things that <clears throat> Teresa asked me one time, like pretty recently when we were taking a walk, was like we were talking about selection, you know, and she was saying like with dogs, do you think the trait of being an alpha dog will ever be domesticated completely out of the dog? Because we want dogs that are being selected to be dependent on us. And one of the things I believe, you know, regarding animism is that we are wildness. It is intrinsically what we are. I think if we take the wildness out, it's sort of like those non-self parts that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. Hmm. Um, there's there's nothing left. So I think even though we're domesticating ourselves and we're selecting for people that are obedient, that are less rebellious because the rebels tend to get imprisoned, executed, um, not really encouraged to carry on their bloodline, <laughs> um, I don't think it'll ever leave us. And I think as part of the evidence of that is that there is still resistance in our culture, that we still fight, that we still, there's something in us that can't quite get all the way domesticated. And you see the same thing in the dog. The dog has been domesticated for a very long time, been completely, its shape has been changed from the wolf of its origins. And yet it is not um, completely unusual to see a dog that can go feral, that can adopt its ancestral traits and become a hunter and become wild again. And, you know, we hear about roving packs of wild dogs. So I take heart in that. I think what we are is wildness. It, it can get atrophied, it can get weakened, but it can't be expelled. It's still in there like a coal within a fire pit lying dormant, just waiting for the right wind to blow on it and burst into flame again. Um, so, yeah, I appreciated that line of thought and that conversation the other morning with that question. So we called this Leaf Stories and Singing Stones, and I based that on a quote that I got from Tom Brown Jr. that he was quoting his teacher, Lippin Apache, um, that he calls Grandfather Stocking Wolf. And he says, every leaf tells a story, every stone sings a song. And that simple statement I just think is so beautiful and eloquent. Um, I consider that sort of the art and science, if you will, of animism. Every leaf tells a story. Here's the science. There is information being relayed to the person who knows how to listen, who knows how to speak leaf, who knows how to speak. You know, it's not just the leaves that are telling stories. Everything tells a story. Um, it's like when John Muir says, if you, you take any one thing in nature, it's hitched to the rest of the universe. And every stone sings a song. Here is the art of animism, the beauty, um, that there is love, there is beauty being expressed. So I, I just love the evocative idea of um, 
leaf stories and singing stones, you know, embodied in that quote. And when Gumby asked me, like, well, what are some things that you wanted to uh, put on the list for animism? Like, what are some personal experiences you have? I mean, the first thing that came to my mind, and I mentioned this, I think, in um, maybe herbalism unplugged or foraging, was that I feel like sometimes the plants, well, I feel like maybe they're always talking to me, depending on how much I'm listening. The plants will often tell me who they are. And whether or not it's like a, a Latin name or a common name or a name that I don't, I have never heard of in my life, but if you're able to have just a few moments of clarity to open up your mind that inner like that internal dialogue is ceased the plants and animals and anything it, they are talking they are communicating everything is communicating the creek this morning was was singing gumby yeah i was singing about my frozen balls <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that was you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was an opera. Um, and, well, Teresa, you've got that you want to talk about animism camp. Oh, well, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything else about... Um, I thought you said that plants... Well, it does remind me of an exercise that Tom Brown Jr. describes where... Um, He encourages people to take a plant they've never seen before, hold it in their hand, and ask, um, what gift do you have to offer me? And to pay attention to the way their body reacts. Again, you know, that sensuousness, paying attention to your body, being here, you know, not up in the clouds, not focused on on heaven or nirvana, right here in this dirty earth, you know, sensuous, this earth full of smells and feels and, and, and visions. Ask the plant, what gift do you have to offer me? And pay attention to what you feel in your body. And then, you know, since we're so rusty with this crap, don't trust it. Go look it up. Make sure. Confirm it. And just to practice that. Um, I thought that was a beautiful animistic practice because we're going to start talking about some ways to try to, like, you know, put the put the rubber to the road, so to speak. You know, it's a fine to have all these, like, lofty philosophies, but... What does that actually look like in a physical world? What's the action that accompanies that? So this, I think, is a really good practice. Begin to talk to plants. Use Robin Kimmerer's uh, Honorable Honorable Harvest to collect them. And then maybe, you know, see, maybe you've got some medicine because there's no rigid divide between food and medicine. So I love that idea of just asking the plant and just seeing what happens. The practice alone, whether you're right or not, is... um, profound it's it's connecting and it's a great lesson in whether or not you are communicating or whether or not you're just being there and and giving it what you have what you want to call it and speaking of exercises that you can do Gumby had this brilliant idea for a summer camp and we just nicknamed it animism camp but it was called leaf stories and singing stones just like this episode um To bring animism, well, to reintroduce it to children. And again, you know, we talked about children are born animists. So when Gumby had this idea of making cards 
with the different names of uh, different tribes, whether it's the sun tribe or the wind tribe or the bird people, um, the earth people, the rock people, and of course the human beings included. And each tribe card had a nickname on it. So the tree tribe was red cedar. Um, the great mystery was circle, right? And the wind tribe breeze, et cetera, et cetera. These kids, and some of them were, well, at least one of them was moved from another camp. So this, this little boy didn't even sign up for animism camp, but how the children responded Oh, and the cards also had a job. Oh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an important part of it. I uh, like we came up with a tribe for all these different aspects of nature: star tribe, plant tribe, animal tribe, and then a spirit name that they could either go by for the week, which most of them by the end of the week did want to go by their name, or not. You know, it was just something to hold on to. So, for instance, if you're part of the wind tribe, the spirit name was breeze. And each kid I found a job for because I wanted that I wanted the camp to be run by the kids. I wanted to like to me if I wanted to teach animism to kids kids a big part of that was them being in this tribe, right. having a job, making the tribe, not just relying on the teacher to create an artificial situation for them. So for instance, since I said Breeze, his job, we had a classroom at the time, it was summer and there was an AC that was always on somewhat, was to watch the door. Always res- show respect to the wind by asking people, oh, would you shut the door behind you? Making sure the door's shut. Mm-hmm. So each kid, whether it was a small job or a big job, like uh, we had, stick. yeah, the great mystery tribe was Circle. And uh, her job at the beginning of every circle when we got together was to give a Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. to lead us in some way to have gratitude in the morning. So it was just beautiful. We had the perfect group of kids for this, too. And I tried this idea for another program over the winter and had um, – it was harder because I only met with these kids once a week and there was already an established routine. So even this one day a week for like two hours. was just two hours. <laughs> but still, um, I could see – I feel like I'm – I stumbled onto something yeah. here. You know, kids having these jobs to form a tribe and representing all the tribes around them. I felt like something magical happened with that. One of the uh, jobs – for the plant tribe was making a nature bouquet. And Gumby and I had done this um, for when we lived in the trailer, especially. We would, at the beginning of each month, we would go out and just walk along the road and um, just kind of observe the different plants growing and sometimes add a clipping of that to our bouquet. And it would be beautiful. In fact, I don't know, maybe we'll make a calendar sometime of all those different uh, months, all the changing uh, plants that were in our bouquet. And the little girl that got the plant tribe, her nickname was Blackberry. Gumby said he had never seen a more beautiful way of creating a ceremony for making the nature bouquet. And he didn't tell her how to do it. I mean, she just kind of went up to the plants and asked. And Gumby, you might have more uh, specifics on Yeah, it was so cool. If we had to gather a plant, we would consult Blackberry. And at first, you know, she didn't even... uh I think English was like her second language. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first she was a little shy, but just showing her respect over and over, like you are the ambassador for the plant. So you can shrug your head and say, I don't know, but I'm always going to ask you, is it okay? Like, would you mind asking the plants or do you mind if I ask the plants? And by the end of the week, man, she was like embodying that. She really <laughs> took such pride and being the ambassador for taking care of the plant people. And she helped make the sun and moon tea also, where we picked, well, she 
was in charge of uh, asking the mint and selecting it and then putting it into the jars. And then Saul from the Sun Tribe put the tea out during the day. And who did the moon? I think you ended up doing that. Yeah, and the nature bouquet, that's something Teresa and I used to do at the beginning of every month. I've done it. Yeah, I've done it through a few like places I've lived. But one of the things I loved about the nature bouquet is I'm kind of trained as a naturalist. I've learned like a lot of Latin names. I've learned I'm also like have been into wilderness survival for a while. So I tend to look at things through one viewpoint of like, okay, this is good for this medicine. This is good to make a bow drill. But the nature bouquet was this one time a month at the beginning of every month that all I looked for was beauty. And my God, it would astound me every time I did this that I could look like walk down a road, any road. I wouldn't pick a road that I thought beautiful things were on. I'd pick any road, walk down there and collect the nature bouquet. And there was always profound beauty and how easy it was to set aside that intellect and just recognize, my God, this is wondrous. This is magical. This is beautiful. And, um, yeah, just to bring that into your home. I had like thistle seeds that were ready to burst and I brought it into my home one time and came home one day and there was just like, it looked like it had snowed. The thistle seeds had just thrown seeds everywhere all over the house. And I've had a couple spiders like climbing around my bouquet, but yeah, I was just, yeah, I would encourage anybody like the nature bouquet, you know, and it's great practice for the honorable harvest, you know, to ask if you can take this stuff. Um, what a profound animistic ritual that we um, created for ourselves. We don't do it now that we're in the van, um, cause for obvious reasons, having a bouquet in there, but wow, if you have a house, it is, I loved it. Now the whole world is our bouquet. <laughs> As we walk, we're like, Oh, look at this beauty everywhere. And something else that the children really took to, and Gumby uses this in all of his camps is the smudge stick. You want to talk any more about that? Uh, you go for it. Well, okay, so um, in the animism camp, the representative for the tree tribe was Cedar, and she was in charge of keeping the smudge stick and lighting it if she wanted to and passing it along and anything else that she felt could be included in that ritual. And, you know, to give something with that much uh, responsibility to a kid, I mean, if she lost the smudge stick... Uh, it takes a couple days at least to dry out another one. Um, but she did. She protected it. She was the ambassador for the tree tribe, and it happened to be from a cedar tree. Um, but when you pass the smudge around with kids, it's a profound change of their energy, of their reverence for the ritual. And it's not like we're telling them, shut up, be quiet. <laughs> it's just something that they understand. It's it's knowable. It's not something that you have to really think about. You just feel it. Even the kids that are kind of troublemakers start to uh, simmer down there. And did you want to say anything else about the sun and moon tea? All right. Um, something else that we encouraged the kids to do, even though it was kind of against the rules of the school, was to walk barefoot. Um, and Gumby had said one time, it might've been in our earthing episode, but to think of what that means to take off your shoes. Most of the time when people go home, they go into their house, they take off their shoes. But what, if you feel like the world is your home, why would you want to wear shoes? Okay. I'm wearing shoes today because it's really, really, really cold. But (laughs) when I can, I try to go walk barefoot. And it's also 
it's also a sensual act to feel all of the different types of terrain under your feet. When you wear shoes, it's like you have blinders on and you don't know the differences between this sand and that or this mud and that mud or this grass and that, whatever. So um, just to be able to, to have those experiences and, and feel all of the world. I thought I made a note about the Council of All Beings. You but... did. It's down here. Oh, okay. But you can talk about it if you want. I'll wait for that. we got plenty to talk about. Okay. Um, something else that we did in the animism camp and that Gumby had practiced throughout his training when he was learning about nature. Oh, yeah. Let me preface this. that We're about to talk about sit spots, and this uh, came largely from John Young in the Wilderness Awareness School in this great program called the Kamana Naturalist Training Program. Um I feel like this is, isn't is by itself animism, but it is definitely a platform if you want to go in that direction to uh, give you a good foundation for animalism. Um, animism. Animism. Animalism. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Animalism, too, um, especially with the routine of invisibility. So we did this with the kids, um, teaching them how to, first of all, to expand like the periphery vision. So using your arms, reaching out as far as you can, and then seeing if you can find where you're wiggling your fingers in your peripheral vision and try to keep your eyes relaxed and open to the sides. And that's owl eyes. And as you begin to move, learning to move like the fox and the way that you roll your foot on the ground helps you to connect, to see what's underneath you, if there's a rock or something, to move your foot before you hurt yourself and not just to plod along. Um, cat form. Gumby? Well, this is all part of the routine of invisibility, which is called that because you're trying to make as little of an impact as you can when you walk to your sit spot. And it also creates a ritual around it. So before you even start moving... Um, you know, you close your eyes and you do a little thanksgiving. And whatever you want to give thanks for, you give you you evoke that feeling of gratitude. And then while your eyes are closed, sound mapping. So you're listening to, you know, all the sounds around you and where they're coming from and kind of create a map in your head. And it's a really cool way of connecting to your environment. When you open your eyes... You do the owl eyes that Teresa was just describing, you know, like open your eyes and imagine you're an owl, not just like try to see as an owl, but imagine you have those feathers, that sharp beak, like embody the owl, call on that totem um, and try to see with your peripheral vision, you know, expand your view as much as you can. So already there's there's generally six steps to the routine of invisibility. Before you even start moving, you've done three. And it creates a ritual that you're about to do something special. You're, you're stepping into a cathedral, a church. It's Walking into the woods isn't something that's just casual. It's a very special, sacred, enchanted, magical thing. Now, as you start moving, um, the fox walk, which, you know, it's like a slow, like often a three-second step, like one two, three. That's one step. And you're very mindful with your feet. Your center of gravity is on your hips and you're um, moving slowly. Uh, I've heard it. Another way to describe fox walk is step as if as it's each footstep on the earth was a blessing upon the, the face of your mothers, your ancestors, just walking in reverence. Cat form is another part of the routine of invisibility. I described the cat as being a teacher of movement. This is a good time to use it. Um, take a few steps. Stop. 
Look around with those owl eyes. Continue to tune into your sound mapping. Notice what sounds you hear and where they're coming from. And finally, the last step I've heard called the lazy surveyor <laughs> or the wanderer. So the lazy surveyor is, imagine you have a job as a surveyor and your boss doesn't care what you get done for the day. You're getting paid by the hour. So just eight hours to, you stay out in the woods. Just stay out in the woods and, you know, if I think you're working, you get paid. So in other words, just that kind of mindset. You're just free to wander. So Tom Brown also talks about don't go to something, go toward something. Mm -hmm. Because two traps you in a destination. I'm going to the mailbox. Now you don't see anything on the way to the mailbox. You just go to to the mailbox. Whereas if I'm going towards the mailbox, I might see a deer trail. I want to check it out. And suddenly, like two hours later, or as Tom Brown tells some stories, like, you know, a whole year later, um, (laughs) you know, he's got this great story about like following a butterfly, which led to this, which led to that, which led to this, which led to that. And just a short walk turned into like this epic journey. (laughs) But that's the mindset. You know, these are the routines of invisibility. Um, It's just a way to be in the world that's a lot less impactful. So to continue with sit spots, sit spots is the most powerful tool, um, and I don't, I call it tool because I can't think of another word at the moment, but practice, exercise, routine for being in the woods that I know of. It is the best teacher. When I introduce this to kids, I tell them, you're about to, to, to meet the best teacher you'll ever meet. And it is the practice of sitting in the same spot near your home, day after day, year after year, and getting to know it in all its complexity, all its depth. Um, it's best if it's only a couple minutes away from your house, because much further than that, you're just not going to make the time to go there. The ideal time is minimum of sitting there 40 minutes. But if you can only sit there five minutes, anything is better than nothing. I've even heard of people in the the city that just open a window. Their sit spot is sitting in their apartment next to an open window. Make it work. Find ways to make something work. Anything will benefit you more than nothing. Um, So you've used the routine of invisibility, you get to your sit spot, and, you know, the sense meditation is something I was taught, like going through all the senses with the animals that I described, the deer ears, the owl eyes, the bear nose, just seeing if you can put them all together, which I've heard called wolf form. That's the ultimate sensory teacher, putting all these senses together and just taking it all in like a sponge and sitting there and seeing what you notice. It's really powerful when you follow this up with journaling, going back home and writing down what you saw. Um, Let's face it, I've talked about the bad side of literacy, but we are literate, a literate culture at this point. So just the way we've been taught, the way we've been conditioned, using this can actually help us at this point. Um, So writing down, it helps kind of cement things in your mind, helps you remember things. Um, I love reading through my old journals about sit spots. Just one of the things that impressed upon me was every day was a beautiful day. And when I went to my sit spot, I would realize that every day had its own unique beauty. I've seen where Gumby's sit spot, at least a couple of them were. And also, you know, him sharing his journals of that time with me. And it is amazing how much you become that place. Gumby, you even said returning to your sit spot, you like sat down and you felt like you plugged in. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's more than I can describe in words, that's for sure. But uh, 
you know, there's all these activities you can do at your sit spot. Like if you want to start a sit spot, find a place in the woods that's like, if it can be near water, that's best. If it's at a transition zone where one habitat meets another, like a field meets a forest, pine forest meets a hardwood forest, any kind of transition, that's great. Um, Private, because, you know, people might like look at you weird. That might make you feel kind of awkward. You might stop going. So someplace that you feel like it's between you and the woods, that's really good. Look for hazards, you know, like get to know poison ivy, ants, things like that. Of course, you don't want to sit in a place that's going to drive you off. Um, but like I said, make anything work. If you can't make all these three, th- all these things work together, just find as close as you can get. <clears throat> go there every day if you can. Twice a day, even better. I used to go twice a day. Um, you know, sit for 40 minutes to an hour if you can, but two minutes is better than nothing. Mm. Journal about it, and your sit spot is basically if you find the four directions, east, south, west, north, walk 100 paces in each one of those directions. And then find, or if you have to, make, but I've always been able to find something, a landmark. And then, like, you can map this. This is your sit spot. This circle, when you walk 100 paces from your anchor point, that's the place where you sit, east, find a landmark. Go back to your anchor point. Walk 100 paces south. Find a uh, landmark. Same thing west, same thing north. You've got a big circle that you're sitting in the middle of. That becomes your church and your classroom. And man, everything that happens in there, you study. Like I was taught to make maps of uh, the tracks. I made a tracking map. So I'd find all the trails, all the scent posts, places where things pooped, and I would keep up with my tracking maps. They were plant maps. You know, identify the the plants in that area and then watch them throughout the year. Hydrology map. Is there any water? What about even wet spots, places where water tends to be, like collect maybe underground? Which way does it flow if you have a stream? Um, Topography. What's the shape of the land? Draw a map of that the best you can. Soil and rocks. You don't need to be a scientist. Is it more sandy? Are there big rocks here? Just draw that on a map. All these separate maps. And, you know, that's a great way to get to know your sit spot, your secret spot. Um, And then, you know, I used to do a map like once a week and just kind of write what was going on and put that in and like include that in the map. But my God, the things I learned out there... um, it was fantastic. I, I studied bird language, and you know, one of the things I could use this area for was to take a little timer with me and a little notebook and separate my time out there into 10-minute intervals. And each 10-minute, I'd write down what I'd hear, what I'd see, and then I'd make a little note, that 10 minutes is up, and then write down what I heard and saw in the next 10-minute interval. And this is a great way to start realizing what the birds are talking about. You might hear a bird making a certain sound that's unusual, and because you go there all the time, you realize it's unusual. Then the next 10 minutes, what do you know? You see a cat. Now, because you've done that, you've made these notes in 10-minute intervals, you start drawing links. You're starting to talk to the woods. They're talking to you. You're drawing links that you might otherwise miss because, let's face it, our culture has deadened us with TV, with loud music, with bright lights. Our senses are just dulled. Um, they don't want to be like sensitive and open because they get overwhelmed. So we've learned to kind of shut them off. So we can use all the little kick, all the, the training wheels, all the, the kick starts we can to learn this, this ancient language. And sit spot, man, I could just go on and on. I tell this story to the kids all the time about one time I decided to be at my sit spot all night. Sat there all day. The first thing I noticed is that the insects would come in shifts. You know, as soon as one insect stopped, like the flies, um, another insect would take over. 
And because I was always moving, I never realized that the insects seemed to have a shift, just like people clocking into work. You know, I just assumed I went to a different location, and so there were different insects there. But as I sat there, I learned that, and I'd never read that. I still haven't read that anywhere. That's information I had to learn directly from the forest. And then I fell asleep there. I stayed there overnight. Next morning, I woke up. I'm going to try to tell this fast. I looked around. It looked like there was fog around me, but it looked, you know, strange. And uh, I had to pee, you know, as I usually do when I wake up. So I realized it's spider webs, and I, like, push them out of the way, go take a pee, and I turn around, and there were spider webs, almost like a cocoon, all around my sit spot where I had been sitting. Nowhere else, you know, they were kind of scattered everywhere else, but really focused on my sit spot. The spiders had set their traps around me because I was drawing insects. I learned a valuable thing about spiders. It changed forever my relationship with spiders. I have such a profound respect for their intelligence now. Never read that in a book. Can't Google it. Had to go out there and learn it directly from my sit spot. This is the power of the sit. Um, it, Like Teresa said, it's like sitting down and plugging into a battery after a while. Part of yourself is out there at that sit spot. It's amazing. If, if you're interested in learning, like, animism beyond the philosophy and actually making it real, I think that's the most important thing I could direct somebody to is the sit spot. And if you want to learn more about it, the Kamana Naturalist Training Program, um, their website used to be natureoutlet.com, still might be, through Wilderness Awareness School, John Young. Uh, it's got a lot to offer. Wow. And that's kind of all... Yeah, I talked about the maps. Wrapped up. What about yeah. the ecology? What does that mean? What's that well, you were mentioning the other day about tracking. Oh, I bird see. That's language. connected to here. Okay, I'll go ahead and talk about that. So, some other skills, you know, sit spot, I'm saying, like, can help with all these other skills as well. But some other things to study that I feel like really lend themselves to animism in particular is ecology. Um, Not the boring books that you Oh, my God. Some of the books will kill your love of nature. Be careful. (laughs) But Peterson's Field Guide to Eastern Forest is a great resource. So is Reading the Forested Landscape, A Natural History of New England by Tom Wessels. But ecology is beautiful because it's all about relationships. So it gives you a bigger picture. You know, it's important to learn the species, but that can get kind of scientific. And you can start actually seeing the world in a dead way. Specimens. Uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt that, like, collects his bugs and sticks needles through them. You can learn, but, my God, what are you really learning if you're learning about a dead world? Yeah. So if you want to learn animism, ecology is a beautiful thing if you approach it in the right way that teaches teaches about the living world, the connections, the jobs that things are doing out there that have nothing to do with people. Tracking. You know, we talked about the dangers of literacy. Real literacy, ancient literacy, meaningful literacy that will change your entire world, tracking. Learn to read the things around you. And it's not just footprints. You can track anything. Ecology is a form of tracking. Tracking is following the questions, being a detective, and putting the clues together. Um, So tracking really lends itself. Quinn talks about that maybe the first step in becoming us, you know, as a part to other animals where we became like, okay, that's a human being, he suggests it might be tracking. And uh, with my limited experience with it, I would agree with that idea. Bird language. I talked a little bit about it, but there's this book, What the Robin Knows by John Young, that gets into the details of understanding bird language to really learn it, not just in a theoretical way, but where you can actually know what you're hearing when you hear the birds talk. Set spot, once again, huge. 
Um, and I won't go into details about that because John Young talks about it and we're, you know, <laughs> we're, we got a lot to talk about. Um, and finally, botany. Um, botany for the same reason of ecology, learn your species, but botany is beautiful because you learn families. What do I mean by family? Relationships. Mm. When you got a family, let's say the mustards, the brassica, um, you know, you're finding all these common themes, the way the flowers grow, the, the relationship between these plants that binds them together. So I would say anything that creates a bigger picture really lends itself to animism, which isn't to say that learning the species and everything doesn't, but I know a lot of people that are very knowledgeable about, about nature that talk about it in terms of a dead thing. They have yeah. not escaped um, this evil black magic of seeing the world as a dead thing that can be exploited and really has no value other than how we can exploit it. You need to be careful how you use it if you want to get to animism. Yeah, I just love all of those different approaches to practice your animism because it it's not dead. It's Well, animism is everything is alive, but to bring that back within us, and I just thought that was really awesome. It's like Gumby had been on this track his pretty much his whole life, right? <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but wow. <laughs> and uh, that leads us to discussing some of the things that van life has taught us um, about our relationship, for example, with the wind this year. My goodness, I, I usually like the wind, especially in the hot, hot summers of central North Carolina, but we've encountered some wind this year that I've never experienced before. And not all of it came out of me. Okay. Not all of it came out of him. Most of it did. Um, yeah, just the harshness of a wind or the the feelings that you get when a wind comes. Uh, I think it was one of the first, I don't know, dates or times that Gumby invited me out. Um, it was a windy day. I mean, and it was like February, I think. We went up to the reservoir, the whole reservoir, I think it was, and mm-hmm. there was just this really strong wind coming in. And Gumby, you mentioned that around this same time of year, there's like that bad wind that comes, and it kind of stirs your brain up, kind of makes you feel uneasy a little bit. Yeah, we're kind of anticipating that. I've heard, I thought I was just noticing that. I actually tuned into that on my own, and then I read it. I don't remember where, but actually some indigenous people talk about this bad wind that comes at the end of winter. It's sort of like spring cleaning. All this bad stuff that's become sedentary comes up. Yeah. And it's strange because, like, spring will be coming, the the weather will turn beautiful, and yet you're deeply depressed. And you're like, what the hell's going on? What's wrong with me? It's sort of, it's this bad wind. And so, uh by living in a van where I feel like we're closer to nature, like the day length, you know, that's something we've really noticed is uh, affecting us. Oh my God. The more darkness <laughs> of the winter, I've never had it affect me so much. It's it just, like nine to five. That's your daylight. That's it. Yeah. Maybe. I feel the shortness of the days. <laughs> <clears throat> and with that, um, the sun, because there'll be days when the sun feels so good. Sometimes it's too harsh and sometimes it's too damn much and we're you know, running for the shade or running for the hills and trying to get somewhere cooler. Um, And also, you know, Gumby mentioned the length of the day, but also time itself. And uh, David Abram actually had a really interesting perspective on that, if you wanted to discuss. 
Yeah, one more thing I want to say about wind is my relationship has changed with it. And uh, I kind of think of wind as like sort of an asshole now. You know, <laughs> okay. I st- no, no, no. I, I still respect it, but it's kind of like a family member. You know, you got family members. They're still your family, but sometimes it's like, oh, Uncle Billy's sort of an asshole. Hey. I kind of think of that as like... Um, Teresa's got an Uncle Bill (laughs) I didn't mean him But um, Like the wind is very Mischievous you know the wind will always pick up When I least want it there kind of like a cat Finds the person in the room that doesn't like cats Yes Um, The wind has a definite personality (laughs) And it definitely seems to like to needle me To challenge me to kind of like Tick me off so I've just yesterday I was writing all this stuff for the podcast and I said to Gumby, well, at least it's not windy out because it would blow all these papers away. And I kid you not, it had not been windy. And then right after I said those words, the wind picked up and it just persisted for a really long, ridiculous time. And I think that's a big part of animism <laughs> is that everything part is part of your family, but it doesn't mean you turn into some new age like, oh, everything is so kind and love, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you got some assholes in your family, but they're still your family. You know, that's what makes it animism. You still treat everything respectfully, and it's never outside of your family, even if it's an asshole. So, you know, kudos to you, Wind. Um, or when we're getting, uh, taking a really cold dip in a creek or a river or lake. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about that David Abram talks about in... What was that? That was the spell of the sensuous, I believe. He talks about an animistic view of time. Um, But I thought this was really interesting. He says, like, it's kind of a window to what might be a way of seeing time in a sensuous universe. What would be the present? And he says, you know, we're taught to think of time in very abstract terms. But what if the present was the horizon? You look around and everything within the horizon, your visible horizon, is your present moment. What's the future? It's over the horizon. Anything you go over the horizon, it's the physical future because you're not there yet, but you could go there. That's the distant future. What's the near future? Look at the trees around you. You don't know what's on the other side of those trees, but you could find out pretty easily. Just walk around the other side. That is the physical distant future. I mean, the physical near future, the distant future is over the horizon. And he said, I wondered what the past might be in a a sensuous universe, an animalistic universe. Would it be the opposite horizon? My back's too? That doesn't make sense because you can never go home. If I go to where I just came from, it's different. That's not really the past. It's still the future. And then he thought, what if it's the ground? Like, if the distant future is over the horizon... Maybe the distant past is underneath the ground. And he talks about how the, the future is withheld. So in other words, it's not just easily offered. You have to do something to go find it. Look behind the tree. Run Look over, over the there. next to horizon. Yeah. The past is refused. Just like, you know, we're going to move into the future. The future is something that like two minutes from now, I'm going to find out what is two minutes from now. But <laughs> two minutes in the past, I can't really return to it. I can remember it. And so the ground is withheld. You have to do something a lot more invasive, uh, harder labor to find this out. And what do we, like the people in our culture that study the most distant epochs of time, what do they do? They dig into the ground. That's where the distant past is. And perhaps the most recent past is like the core of trees. Again, it's withheld. Like refused. Refused. 
yeah, the future is withheld, the past is refused. But it was very interesting. It was very philosophical and kind of hard to read. But, uh, God, what he was getting at was pretty profound. I love, I still turn that over in my head, the sensuous idea of time. Not time as an abstract concept, because as I've heard described, a clock can only be measured and proved by another clock. It just measures itself. But time as experienced by our sensuous physical experience, what that might look like. Mm-hmm. And uh, the final thing that I was just going to mention about van life was our relationship with water, whether it's rain or fog being up in a cloud in the mountains or the beautiful creeks and streams and rivers and lakes that we frequent and get to know and um, become part of when we bathe or when we you know, sit there and enjoy. And... Um, yeah, I'll just make this quick. All right, so um, I wanted to read a quote. This is in The Spell of the Sensuous, David Abrams' first book, um, but this quote is actually featured at the beginning of a chapter, and it's by Thomas Merton. Um, so the quote says, The rain surrounded the cabin with a whole world of meaning, of secrecy, of rumor. Think of it. All that speech pouring down, selling nothing, judging nobody, drenching the thick mulch of dead leaves, soaking the trees, filling the gullies and crannies of the wood with water, washing out the places where men have stripped the hillside. Nobody started it. Nobody is going to stop it. It will take, it will talk as long as it wants the rain. As long as it talks, I'm going to listen. Yeah. And uh, I just want to give a quick nod to Deep Ecology. This is a movement that has a lot of animist philosophy in it. Um, So that's a good thing to kind of study up on, take a look at. Um, One of the things I love about Deep Ecology is it questions, like, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about our relationship to nature, but most of the ones you hear in our culture involve us ruling over nature. Um, Are we caretakers? Are we exploiters of it? Do we protect it, like put a fence around it? Do we use it? Do we live in it? But deep ecology brings up some really interesting questions like, what if we're not in charge of it? What would it look like to not imagine that we own it? What if it's not our choice to do anything with it? What if we're just figuring out how to participate in it? So I really love that about deep ecology. And um, an activity that I would invite you to do um, and I had the kids do this, and I, I derive a lot of satisfaction from this, is that even if you do it for five minutes, take a deep breath, go outside, or even inside for that matter, but I think it's it's better outside, and just use your imagination. Even if you don't believe right now that everything is alive, for five minutes, bring that inner child back. You know, totally engage your imagination and imagine what it would be like to pretend, just pretend, that everything is alive. Your clothes are alive. They're touching you. How do they touch you? Are they touching you, like, reassuringly? The sun's alive. The sunlight touching your face. The wind. Maybe you sit on the earth. The earth is alive. The grass is alive. The shadows are alive. Imagine being in a universe where everything is alive. And I guess I would would just 
argue it a little bit to say I don't think it's necessarily better to do outside. It might be different, but sitting on the couch and feeling the aliveness of the couch or the pillow that is near you. Well, I just feel like there's much more happening outside, but yeah, yeah, you can do it anywhere. I mean, you know. Or uh, this table that I'm leaning on, like how much is it leaning against me and I'm leaning against it? Yeah. But, um, you know, just give yourself that gift, you know, and then when you feel that, when you feel what it would be like to live in a universe where everything is alive, everything has something to teach you, everything is an entity sharing this beautiful, mysterious universe with you, ask yourself, whether you believe it or not that everything is actually alive in that way, which universe do you want to live in? How did you feel when you did that? Do you want to live in a universe where everything's alive? Or do you want to live in a universe where everything is dead, that we have this dark magic, this power over a dead universe, things that don't talk, things that don't feel, things that are only resources to be exploited and turned into dead money, um, which feels better, you know? And I don't know. I just I found that the first time I did that just to be a profound activity. It is really beautiful. And I agree that being outside, it's... Especially since we're not outside a lot of the time. It's, like, really magical. Ooh. I think it's just starting to rain. Um, remembering the honorable harvest that Gumby talked about, and really, just to reiterate, to listen. Don't just play. Just really feel like you're listening to your surroundings, to everything. Um, mention again the bare feet and how that kind of denotes that you're home, um, and treating everything with care, everything as if it is God, everything is alive. Yeah, Philip Kaplou, who uh, I think he wrote The Three, three Pillars of Zen, he, uh, from a, a Buddhist perspective, writes, it is the unaware mind that breeds insensitivity to people and things, for it doesn't see and appreciate the value of things as they are only seeing them as objects to be used in satiating one's own desires. The aware person sees the indivisibility of existence, the deep complexity and interrelationship of all life, and this creates in him a deep respect for the absolute value of things. It is out of this respect for the worth of every single object, animate as well as inanimate, that comes the desire to see things used properly and not to be heedless or wasteful or destructive. Truly to practice Zen, therefore, means never to leave the lights burning when they are not needed. Mm. Never to allow water to run unnecessarily in the faucet. Never to leave a scrap of food uneaten. For not only are these unmindful acts, but they indicate an indifference to the value of the object wasted or destroyed and the efforts of those who made it possible for us. In the case of food, the farmer, the trucker, the storekeeper, the cook, the server... This indifference is the product of a mind that sees itself as separate from a world of seemingly random change and purposeless chaos. Um, Again, I find that to be a very animist sentiment. And I've heard that um, a true Zen practitioner would never, like, drag a chair across a floor, would never slam a door. You know, a true Zen practitioner sees that everything is the Buddha and treats it with care. And to me, that's another way of saying another term used for animism, treating everything as if it's alive, as if it's God. Um, and I, <laughs> there's the story I heard of this one guy that was studying with a, 
a Zen teacher and the guy like ate an olive and um, he put it on his plate and the Zen teacher picked it up and sucked the rest of the stuff off the seed <laughs> and uh, put it back. And he said his teacher was always doing things like that. Like he would insist, like, you know, complete whatever you're doing. Like that olive deserved better than for you to be unmindful and careless with it and only eat part of it. So I love that. To me, that's that's very animistic. And uh, I'm just going to set this up for Gumby to talk about because I feel like we've covered the routine of invisibility and the sit spot. Um, but the Temple of Fire, and we actually have our hobo stove fire right next to us. We were trying to keep it alive and uh, keep us warm today. Yeah, and another like good animist intera- inter- interaction is working with fire. And the Temple of Fire is, again, something I learned from Tom Brown. Um, using tiny twigs, you know, not building a fire up where you can kind of step away from it, but just using the tiniest twigs where it takes constant maintenance, constant attention and awareness. That is really a great practice for communicating with fire. And fire is one of those entities that lends itself really well to communication. Um, you can you can really tell if you're communicating with fire because it has immediate consequences. You know, the fire goes out if you're not talking to it. You have to listen. Um, and, yeah, I guess that's all I, I've got about the Temple of Fire. Yeah, Pretty much any time you're interacting with fire, I feel like, can be a really great platform for animistic practice. That was a really good practice when um, we were doing our survival challenge with the fire, and I had to keep it alive, just big enough in the Apache long match to get it back to our camp, but not too big so that it would burn through the pieces of bark I was holding the fire in, in my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, let's see. Oh, Gumby introduced this to me. This is... Uh, Maybe one of the last things we'll recommend, but uh, again, speaking to ritual, building circles, and we actually did this where we lived at um, with a trailer. But to walk, what would you say, like 200 paces, or how no, far? no. What I would do, I started doing this at. Uh, I, I had a couple jobs where I was a caretaker of a park, and I would find wherever I lived, and I'd take a compass, compass bearing. And I would walk in the four cardinal directions as far as I could go that felt like, you know, still in the woods. You know, it might be the edge of a road where I'd have to stop, a fence, but there was no specific um, distance. Oh, okay. Like sometimes east would be like, you know, right almost within view of the house where west would be a day's journey. Oh, okay. Um, But yeah, building a circle, like just taking the time to take some stones and like, you know, asking permission and building a circle. I'd take the biggest stone and put it at the point, like if I was building the west circle, the the biggest stone would be on the west side of the circle. And then like finding something that felt special and making a little offering on this altar rock. And um, my God, just having circles, you know, whenever I can, if I live someplace for a while, having a circle in all four directions. It, it really connects me with the land, and I find all kinds of things to do with these circles, all kinds of little ceremonies that just kind of introduce themselves, you know, to bring in the energy. Um, many indigenous tribes thought that all the directions had a different kind of energy, and so, you know, depending on what I want to do, what I want to say, what I want to communicate, um, I would use the circles differently. But I think that was like a really important animistic practice for me to go out and to spend that day just taking a compass bearing and going as far as I can, building the circle, giving thanks. And then every now and then, sometimes I'll feel like, man, I want to visit the circles. And uh, it really connects me to that land. 
Well, we have once again <laughs> wild away the day talking about one of our favorite topics, animism. And I just wanted to read one of our listeners wrote in Nicholas from, I'm probably going to butcher this, Saint-Étienne in France. So he writes, after the fire people, listen to the fire people episode, I listened another time to Unabomb. And I could be listening to it another third time in a couple of days, seeing eye to eye with all that is said, all that is exposed, even experienced exactly what you described when evoking Ted Kaczynski or sharing industrial society and its future with French Derek Jensen and deep green resistance supporters and other assorted radical ecologists, so-called, over the past week. It's always funny to see groups displaying banners saying the techno-industrial civilization is killing the planet, then checking out the type of conventional approach they all have, posturing with neo-Luddism, then worshiping non-violence and so forth. Basic, usual, just wanted to say cheers. And Nicholas, thank you so much for writing in. We see you also have written in a couple times, so thank you for that and for listening. And yeah, Gumby, do you want to speak to the um, nonviolence? And uh, I know we're going to be doing some episodes a little later on like, where's yeah, the line Yeah, we're going to speak a little bit more about that. But I feel <laughs> like, uh, you know, he mentioned Unabomb. So um, <laughs> Nicholas, yeah, you kind of, you know, our views on it. We've already <laughs> talked about it. Yeah, but just um, how much do you love this earth? Like, what is it going to take I feel like a sane person, the sane reaction is not to want violence. Um, you know, we live in a violent culture that does horrific things as like a daily occurrence. We, we are parasites on violence. So to imagine because you personally aren't bashing somebody's head in with a rock that you're not violent, it just doesn't bear the weight of reason when you look at what re- is required for you to live the way you live. So, um, yeah. I just wonder when it's time to fight and what a fight looks like, you know. So I think there's a lot of questions there and people that just draw a line, you know, while they still live the way we all do. I don't buy it. I think it's still an open-ended question. Well, thank you so much again for writing in and thanks for listening to this podcast. If you uh, if you want to contact us, you can do so at our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. Thanks. Bye. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.